Hello, this is Jim, and this is what I've been calling Prosaic Mosaic. Not for any good reason, just because I needed a name, and hey, it rhymes. And if there's one thing I know, the people like rhyming. Well, where are we now? It's actually been two months. Yeah, just over two months that uh, I have been sheltering in place. I have been out for groceries, and I think out once or twice for a middle-of-the-night stroll on the water, and that is it. Uh, It doesn't really look like this is going to alleviate anytime soon. Uh, There was an episode of 30 Rock in which Liz is dating, the main character, Liz Lemon, is dating a, a pilot, and... She happens to be flying on a flight that he is piloting. And before they take off, they're stuck on the ground for, you know, airplane reasons or airport reasons or something, something wrong. They don't quite tell the people in the, in the cabin what's going on, but they, they have to say something. So they just say, Hey, it's going to be about 30 minutes. We can't take off. We can't let you all off the plane. You just got to wait and be patient. And he keeps coming back on and saying, you know, it's uh, it's going to be 30 minutes. We appreciate your patience. So Liz knows the pilot. She goes up and is talking to him. And she says, look, what's going on? Why don't you have to tell us what's going on? He's like, he's like, look, uh, I forget what the actual issue is. I don't even remember if he tells her. But he says, look, it just, it's just a psychological thing. If you tell people it's going to be 20, 30 minutes, like that just... If you keep saying that over and over again, you can drag it out. People can deal with it then. You know, but if it's a lie, we really don't know how long it's going to be. But you just string people along and baby steps it, and they kind of go along with it. If you were to say, you know, it's probably going to be six hours, you're stuck on this plane, everyone freaks out. So it's a just a, a little tiny sequence of light, white lies that add up to um, quite a bit more. I feel like that's what's going on now. I feel like it's like every three weeks, it's like, you know, we're going to have to do another three weeks. This is like the third batch of three weeks that we're going to do. And I'm pretty sure when we get to the end of May, once this duration is up, it's going to be, yeah, we're extending it through close to the end of June. Just bit by bit, inching us along. And I understand why they're doing it. I understand that that this is absolutely necessary. Because the virus kind of has us in its grip. We are, um, yes, it's hostage now. So it is the right thing to do. I completely understand that. But I am definitely, I'm feeling like less of a Gemini as far as politics goes. If you listen to me, if you under, if you know who I am, you understand that I try to see both sides of things and I try to harmonize the two if I can. I try to understand why there's a conflict and what each side is doing. I do not understand what our leaders are currently doing. I don't understand. In order for us to reopen the country and reestablish some semblance of normalcy, we need testing. And I do not see action being taken at the federal level to institute that in a systematic way. It doesn't seem like things are being mobilized in the correct direction. I I am incredibly frustrated that when I turn on the TV and there's a news conference and our president is speaking, he is talking about how the media is the enemy of the people and they are 
basically libeling him or slandering him at every step. Like this is all the liberal media's attacks on Trump. This is what is taking front and center in his conversations to the nation in the midst of something like this. I, I don't understand how that is conscionable. I've been kind of going along with it, like, okay, he actually won the election. And I know that, that people dispute that, but he, he became the president. So, fair enough. Um, and he wants to run it like a reality TV show star. Okay, that's not a very effective way of running the country. I think that's a pretty terrible way of doing things. But this is what I don't forgive. The fact that during this situation, the act is not together and it is not, it is not putting the interests of the people before whatever it is he feels about himself. It, it seems like if there was any ambiguity in my mind, and maybe there was some prior to this, it just feels like pathological narcissism. I, I don't see how you can possibly look at what is happening and think that, that, that any sort of media conspiracy or, or any sort of conspiracy, any, any sort of partisan thinking, believing that the left or the right is up to something to try and screw over the country. If you, if you think that there's some agenda going on and then focus on this should just keep dividing us now. I don't know where your head is at. I don't care anything right or left. This is not, I have stopped caring about any of this. For the last couple of months, I, I've, I've just become increasingly exponentially indifferent to differences in political opinion. I'm actually shocked that I go on YouTube and if you kind of glance at the comments, there are still people talking about, oh, the, you know, the woke left is a bunch of snowflakes and they're, they're stupid or everybody on the right is a bunch of alt-right Nazis and so on and so forth. Like, people are still posting this stuff. None of this matters. I understand you have the, the, the notion for tribalism, like you're trying to, I guess it's you need some sense of identity with your tribe, which you, I, you, you believe is some political partisan group. And that's how you're dealing with the stress of this. Maybe that's it. I don't get it. I, this is not the time to resort to tribalism. That, that, is not, that does not strike me as being any kind of coping mechanism for anything ever. But I understand why people do it. I just don't understand why you would, why you would still be doing that right now. People are dying. And we are stuck in our homes and we are probably facing some very, a very strong, very severe economic downturn for the next several years as a result of this. I think the economy is fine. The economy is not flawed, but I think that there will be ripple effects from this that will last for a very long time. And we're not going to see. Yeah, the economy that bounces back from this is not going to be one that sustains anywhere near the level of population that uh, we had before. Um, yeah, I think this is just accelerated some problematic the direction we were already moving in. I've talked about this a little bit before, my misgivings with technology. I, I 
I'm not even going to sing technology's praises. I understand that what a lot of these things do are great. And I, I think most people, if they hear me talk inside of their minds to play devil's advocate, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you're not considering all the benefits. I know what the benefits are. I know how amazing technology is. Okay. I, I understand the internet and apps. If we didn't have Zoom right now, I think, I don't know where we would be right now as a country if we did not have Zoom or social media or the internet. If we were all going through this just in the dark without any way of communicating with outside people, if it was just, I guess if it was just phones, if phones were still just a, a chunk of plastic on the wall, and that was the only thing you had to, to reach out to other people via and you're making long distance calls and those are costing, I don't know how many dollars per minute. So you have to limit how much you do it. If that was still our reality, if this is happening 30 years ago, I don't, I don't think people would be quite as chill with this whole situation as they have been. So for that reason alone, of course, I'm with technology. I'm not saying technology is bad. I, I think it has been a boon to us getting through this crisis and it will continue to be. However, there are economic drawbacks of, of what we currently see happening with the technology, like the, the notion of, okay, you are Uber and you want to develop a self-driving car. What is the reason for this? Because you want to eliminate drivers. I think there was going to be resistance to this. Of course there was going to be resistance. It's like when you want to put a bunch of Uber drivers out of a, out of a job, you basically killed the taxi industry and now you're going to all the, the, the labor that's been working for you that you've had earning money for you and you haven't been treating them like employees, but just like independent contractors dodging employment taxes. You are now going to just replace that with an automated, uh, car driving system. I think there would have been resistance to this. This is arguably a good idea because you'd have, uh, traffic would be safer. If you have a bunch of self-driving cars, if it's just a fleet of self-driving cars that are, that are taking people around the city, then things can run much more efficiently. You can actually, in aggregate, use network flow algorithms to make people get from point A to point B more efficiently than they would if everybody was just acting selfishly. If you can coordinate everyone driving from a centralized place, you can, you can make things flow much more efficiently. Um, if everybody's an independent actor, you can't exactly do that. So you, of course there are benefits to this. And I think we would probably have gotten there at some point anyway. I think that's where we were inevitably headed. Uh, as much as people like to say like, look, I don't go to the self checkout lanes in grocery stores because I want the cashiers to keep having you know, uh, a job. Or you say, you know, look, I'm going to keep going to the bookstores and buying books because I don't want it to just be Amazon. I don't think that sort of good intention, like basically voting with your wallet or voting with your actions in such a way so as to make what could be automated remain because you, you're basically going that route. You're making that choice. I don't think that prevents the inevitable. I think people will always favor convenience 
uh, in general. I think that's always where the, the middle of the bell curve is. People go for cheapest and convenient. And I think that technology inevitably goes in a direction that optimizes for that. That's inevitably what's going to happen. So would we get to self-driving cars? Yes, we will. We will get to a point where there are no Uber drivers. There are just Uber cars. And Uber doesn't have to share the ride money with anyone. I think that's how you roll it out. I mean, an Uber, an Uber trip with an automated car could be initially much, much cheaper. You don't have to like pay a driver any kind of wage. You don't have to share the fee, the fare with a human being. So we, we do get there. We absolutely get there. But I think that I think that there would have been resistance to it. I think that there's enough people who say, you know, like I get into an Uber sometimes and, you know, very often they're just like the stereotypical cab driver you'd find in New York City. Like there's somebody who doesn't speak English very well. And if you try to make conversation with them, they really don't know what you're saying. They don't care to know what you're saying. They're just listening to the radio and getting you from point A to point B as quickly as they can. There is no personal touch to it. There is no personal service. I think if Uber has any failings or if any of the rideshare uh, services have any failings, it's because they don't incentivize for that kind of human touch. I mean, the only reason you would be personable is to avoid a bad rating. And I'm not sure that's enough of an incentive to really go the extra mile. There's no potential for advancement. If you are a better Uber driver, a more personable Uber driver, if you take more interest in your customers, there is no op- there's, there's no opportunity to establish a relationship as far as I know. I don't think you can go on. People don't go on the app and say, well, I really enjoyed this guy I had last time. Is he nearby? Can I request him for, in specifically? I think it's just a driver is a driver is a driver. I think this is ultimately the, the failing. It's that you cannot, there is no potential for repeat business. There is no incentive to be human to inject any amount of humanity into the whole situation. Anyway, whoever's listening to this, I'm sure the message is received. I can move on. So I think that what's happening now is that people are looking at it and saying, you know, it really would be beneficial if there were not a human being involved in this equation just because of the pandemic situation. If there's a human being that comes to pick me up, they might be a carrier. So I think that makes the notion of a self-driving car picking you up for a ride share uh, much more attractive. And I think that stakeholders know this. I think investors know this. I think people at Uber and Lyft know this. And so I, I would guess that they are probably hiring very aggressively now and dumping as many resources as they can into making the self-driving car a reality. I would guess the same thing is happening at, uh, at Google's company, whatever company is, I forget the name, the company that's doing it. I used to see their self-driving cars around Mountain View all the time um, when I when I lived down there. Waymo. 
I think that's a spinoff of Google. I don't know quite how they're they're uh, tied to Google. I guess the best we can hope for is that there will be multiple companies who who release this technology around the same time. They'll they'll get there, and there'll be competition, and this will keep this will keep things competitive. It won't be one person undercuts every other rideshare service that uses a human, drives them out of uh, existence, and then jacks up the price. As long as we don't end up in a monopoly situation, uh, that is probably the best you can hope for. So I think it, it's the economic trends that technology is affording us, letting capitalism just kind of cut people out of the equation and have robots do this job. Yeah, I think that's just that's that's coming much, much faster than it would have otherwise. I think the social resistance, if there were any barriers to it, I think those are kind of gone now. I'm sure more people are having their groceries delivered now. People who never considered using those services are now finding them absolutely vital. Order your groceries online. It's it's really, right now we're all learning how to stay at home and not go out to do anything. And I, I do hope we're learning just how bad that is for us. Part of me hopes that this whole pandemic thing will be a reductio ad absurdum. People will say, you know what? This is where technology is sending us. It's sending us into we're all just in bubbles. We're all just isolated and we can use technology to get anything we want shipped to us. And that feels terrible. Like that feels psychologically damaging. Maybe it's something that like people were incorporating into aspects of their lives. Now that it is pretty much a significant portion of everyone's life, I am really hoping people will look at that and say, you know, this is not where we want to go as a society. We need to go the other direction. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's my fingers are crossed that like people do wake up to it. We come away from this with like so much pent up energy. We need to cross correct in the other direction. We need to overcorrect and get back to we're not using technology for hardly anything because damn it, we need human connection that does not happen through a computer or some kind of app. I'm not even sure if there's like a lesson in history that you could pull from this. Like I understand this has always been a thing. Like in the uh, mid 20th century, people were talking about car lines, like basically the, the factories where cars were assembled. Let's build robots to do a lot of those jobs. And yeah, you heard the same complaint. Like this is just going to put people out of jobs. We're just basically giving the jobs to machines. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, that that's, I, I, I think that's a little bit more limited. You're limited in how many comparisons you can draw there because that is just a, an industrial situation in which something is being manufactured uh, for consumers. Like a factory being automated, yeah, it does affect the labor pool. It does put people out of jobs. And I think it, it has economic impacts, very real ones. Um, 
I feel like this is much more pervasive. This is not just you're a factory worker whose job has been automated away. This is this is a lot more jobs. It's not just people who work in factories. A lot of people who are out, if there is a sense of community anywhere uh, with these people doing the rideshare services, that all goes away very, very quickly. And it, and it also affects people's relationships to each other. I think that is the more important part. It's not just that, okay, you go buy the car, uh, which was put together by robots instead of human beings largely, and then you go about your normal life, whatever your normal life might be. It's that the, your way of life is being overturned completely and utterly by the robots by the processes that this is facilitating. So the complaint is old, but I'm not sure the complaint is the same. I don't think it's quite as thorough or complete, if you will, uh, if you look at the past. And really, if you look at the past as precedent, it's kind of depressing because I don't think, I don't think auto manufacturers like listened to these arguments and took them into account and decided to not replace the workers with robots. I think that just happened. I was talking to somebody about this, about capitalism. I'm, I'm far from being an apologist for capitalism, uh, but I will defend it, at least many aspects of it. Uh, to people who just claim that it's a wholesale evil. I don't think that it is. Um, but she was saying that if you want to fix capitalism, what you have to do is make people central to the whole thing. I think there are psychological, cognitive, sociological reasons that cannot work. That you cannot do that at scale. Um, the, the the case I referenced, well, the piece of evidence I referenced in defense of that is Dunbar's number. The notion that you, uh, you, any individual human being can cognitively only care about 150 people or so. Um, this is found to be pretty consistent across large groups of human beings in any context, anywhere. It seems to be a, a matter of our biology, the biology of our brains, and not so much anything cultural. And I have heard cognitive scientists say that, uh, well, you know, we could evolve beyond that theoretically, but the brain is limited in what it can do. So maybe even evolution isn't something that can drive this factor to change. So 150 people. Beyond that, there are people that are just other human beings that you may know their names, you may relate to them, but you do not identify with them deeply. You're, you don't understand them or empathize with them in any significant way. So if you have something like an economic system like capitalism operating in a country of 300 million people like the United States, you are not going to have any sort of people-centric idea uh, take root in any sustainable fashion. So the notion of having relationships, like making Uber drivers 
giving them an incentive to be more personable because they might get more repeat business um, outside of just a rating system. If you, if, you, if you make every single driver just a driver, if they're all just cogs and you squeeze all the humanity out of the entire process, that's what you get. I don't, I don't think there's any way unless you have management at Uber decides, well, let's, let's invest in this sort of thing. Let's, let's take a, a, a suboptimal amount of profit or revenue and institute a policy that, you know, lets people um, choose their drivers, like form relationships with drivers. And maybe that's not even the best idea. I don't know what the best idea would be, but if you put people first, if you make it so people can, if you're concerned about labor, In a big enough system, like whoever's at the top is not going to have the workers at the lowest level in their 150 people close circle. They're not going to identify with them. And this goes both ways. I don't think labor typically identifies with management. I don't think they, they try to see the world through each other's eyes. I think it's very dog eat dog. And I think that's just what you get in a very large system. So. I understand that the idea, and I think that's probably idealistically and theoretically true. If you have a capitalist system that someone manages to make human well-being, you put that before profit. I feel like people have been saying that is the solution for years. I, I just don't think we've figured out how to instantiate that in any form that would be sustainable. If a company does that, all you need is a change in management. New CEO comes in and says, you know, I know my predecessor did this. We're not doing that because we have, we have numbers to make. So if it happens, it's an anomaly. And it doesn't persist when it does happen. There's no reason for that to be a, a, a stable state. It's an ephemeral way of being this kind of had me wondering okay at some point we recognized that the the notion of church and state philosophers kind of pick this apart and say look if you have theologians if you have the clergy if you have people who are ecclesiastical authorities also acting as political authorities you get bad things happening in your society. This is not good for a population of people being governed by religious leaders who are also political leaders. When you have those two things in bed with each other, bad things happen. It's much better for people and for society if these two things are a check and balance on each other. And if, if, they, if they're not a check and balance on each other, they at least are, are separate. Um, even if in practice this isn't true, ideal, ideologically, politically, they are in two separate clubs that do not touch each other. Yeah, checks and balances is probably not the right word for it because then they could be influencing each other, which I suppose they are. You know, churches do get tax breaks. And of course, churches are, are large forces for things. You know, a group of religious people can 
lobby Congress like any group of people. Uh, so there is, of course, influence both ways. But I wondered if there, if there wouldn't be a benefit in exploring the notion of a separation of economics and state. And I have no idea what that would look like. Um, you have the Federal Reserve, um, Alexander Hamilton's little baby, his brainchild. Um, and this is, of course, a centralized thing. And I do think in, in a country like America, you do need a centralized place controlling the money supply. And, and money supply is a large, how much money is in the economy, how much is floating around versus not is a very large um, part of uh, the role of the central government. Like if, if every single state was issuing its own currency, it would be an exchange nightmare, like it, trying to ship things. Like if, you, if you're producing goods in California and you are shipping them to New York, it's a slightly easier in the age of the Internet. But this would have been a, a massive, massive problem. Just, just, just exchange rates, exchange rate markets, like currency markets uh, between every single state. It probably wouldn't have been every state. It probably would have been regional. Like you'd have a Pacific Northwest currency, probably the state. There wouldn't be 50 of them. You might end up with six or seven, maybe. If you left it to the states, it's, it's, it's curious to know how they would band together it doesn't seem like they would all want to do that. So, I mean, in terms of the money supply, which is a very big control as far as macroeconomics, uh, that does have to, ideally that sits at the federal level and the federal government does control that. But I do wonder if there isn't, there isn't too much say in how the economy is directed and how the Federal Reserve manages the money supply, for example, and what the interests are of the businesses operating in the country. I, I wonder if it is that private business has undue influence over the federal government, like Congress, for example, and this means that private enterprise has too much, it has undue control over the Federal Reserve. I wonder to what extent you would separate these things and uh, what improvements that might make. This is not something I've explored, but I'm throwing the idea out there. It's, it's the kind of, it's one of those things that I like to pose as a question and just see what people who are probably smarter than me or more knowledgeable about me would come up with. Like, where, where do people go with this? Uh, it's one of those things where, like so many things, I try not to offer the answer, but just pose the question and see what you know, human beings and all their diversity come up with four answers. See if any common threads emerge. For reasons like that, I do wish anyone was listening to this because that would that that would be interesting. Like I, I would pose more of those questions. Like I don't know this, but here's what I think people should should be considering. Maybe is this a good question? And if if so, how would you answer it? I am slightly jealous of people who have like the kind of influence that their writers, like Malcolm Gladwell, for example, could easily devise a, a, an answer to this question and then sort of see how people feel about it. Just like, so 
what's your idea? People with audiences, uh, people listening to them. Anyway, yes, so pandemic, we are all sheltering in place. I have started the job search. I think I keep saying that at the beginning, like, oh yeah, I'm looking for a job. I've kind of been looking for a job, like most of the time I've been in shelter in place, like I'm, I am looking. I am not looking anxiously or actively. I'm very passive about what I'm doing. I'm more just putting my feelers out there and seeing what might be possible. And I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to listen to my emotions in this case. Uh, when I, when the shelter in place order first came, I was heavily involved in like just sitting in my computer writing code. And I was happy doing that because I was able to step out of my place and go, do things in the world so there was a balance about a week after shelter in place was issued and i had to stay in uh i started feeling a lot of anxiety when i sat down at the computer to write code it 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 was almost overwhelming i i don't know what it was exactly i haven't quite figured it out i have some ideas but so i have not been writing code and the whole notion of, of getting a job, I've been feeling that as well. Some resistance. I'm trying to figure out what the resistance is telling me. At some point, I'm just going to have to say, you know, it doesn't matter that you feel anxious. Uh, maybe it doesn't matter why. You know, of course, everybody has to work. Go be a productive member of society, especially right now. Um, this is not going to be a good few years. I think the whole... I want to go out and explore the country and figure out what my life's purpose is. You know, what, what is the, how do I spend the second half of my life to self-actualize in a way that I find meaningful? I don't think this is the time to answer that question. I think right now the, the number one priority should be go out and get yourself a steady gig and be ready to hold on to it for a few years because you don't know what's coming. So I'm trying to be very, very diligent about figuring out what I want to do next, because it may be I'm there for the long haul. So I want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons. I, I want to learn technology, like some new set of technologies that I don't know already that will be challenging and keep me engaged and will be useful into the future. Maybe I want to move into more of a tech lead manager role. So I, I want to move away from writing code and just overseeing code that's being written. Any number of ways I could go with this, I'm cautiously trying to figure out where that should be. And I'm trying not to just plunge headlong into the first uh, few opportunities that come my way. Because I can definitely get excited about any job. Even when it sounds boring. Like go, go work for a bank and you're building some system that's designed to detect fraudulent charges that are happening in real time. That doesn't sound very exciting. I mean, one, working for a credit card company, working for a bank. No. Uh, who, who wants to do that? Or building such a system. I, you know, what, I, I don't think people on, on the, would say like that sounds like a very interesting challenge. I, I would jump at that chance. I would love to do something like that. And I, I have to be careful because I have kind of an unbridled enthusiasm for those sorts of opportunities. Like somebody says, hey, come do this. 
you get to play with really cool tech and it's going to do this thing and we will pay you. I'm like, sure. That sounds lovely. And I've been doing that for years. I've been jumping into those kinds of opportunities and relishing the learning that comes from it. And I've been ignoring that little gut, that feeling inside of me. I'm trying to listen to the gut. Not so incidentally, I of course have been considering for a very long time, if I were to go to graduate school, what it is that I would study. Uh, there's a very, very good quote by some scientist who says that the challenge of the scientist, I'm not going to get the quote right. I don't remember what it was word for word, but the challenge of the scientist is to determine a problem that is sufficiently hard uh, that it has not been solved yet, but its time has come for being solved now. I, I think it's a matter of knowing what is emerging. You look at the trends and you say, you know what? Like, for example, deep learning, neural networks, uh, not deep learning, but just regular artificial neural networks, which are a form of artificial intelligence, machine learning, that are very, very widely used now. Those were invented theoretically in terms of their mathematics in the 1980s. And some limited applications of those worked. The most famous one is a, uh, a handwritten digit classifier. If you scan pieces of mail and you can break apart where the letters are, like what the letters are, you can use a neural network to figure out which character each one is. If you're learning how to build a neural network, this is typically the, the first hello world example, like to cut your teeth on doing this. There's a very famous set of digits uh, that you can learn how to build a classifier, typically a neural network using this digit data set, uh, the MNIST digit data set. But they were invented in the 1980s. They didn't really come to prominence for most of what they're being used for today uh, because the computing power just did not exist in the 1980s. The computers were not powerful enough. And so in the interim, they became much more powerful. And in 2010, 2011, people started looking at making deep neural networks much more complicated, uh, much more capable of doing things that regular artificial neural networks were not capable of. Uh, very, very powerful for machine learning tasks. And it was only possible then because computers finally developed adequate hardware and speed uh, and computation capabilities to, to do those things in time that wasn't excruciatingly slow or just things that were outright impossible before. So that's, that's always a factor. You could go study anything you want. You could go study physics if you want. You can go study quantum mechanics. And I'm sure that there are things to be discovered in quantum mechanics on the fringes somewhere. You pick a niche. You know, you say, okay, well, at the subatomic level, we don't understand this or that about particles, uh, like subatomic particles. We don't know this about quarks, gluons. You're really going to be reaching, though. Like, we have really made, I think, most of the easy discoveries for now. I think until there's another scientific revolution in physics, until there's another Einstein that comes along and says, okay, the whole field theory thing, uh, string theory, these are, this is not how we're going to merge general relativity with quantum mechanics. We don't reconcile these two using that. Let's do this other thing. Until that happens, I, I don't think, you go into physics, it's gonna be very, very hard to find some place where you can make a contribution. So it's, it's, it's a very mature discipline. 
So outside of a scientific revolution in the field, it is not a field that is ripe for discoveries you could make. And there are some things, of course, that are way ahead of their time. If you wanted to start tackling the problem of time travel, well, that, that maybe that's, let's say, quantum computing. Uh, people are building quantum computers, and they're, they're developing algorithms for quantum computers. Uh, but this is still very, very nascent. Like You wouldn't go into quantum computing because you wanted to go get a job. Being a quantum computer scientist or a quantum computer programmer uh, at a company somewhere, that's, that's, we're probably decades and decades away from that before they become the norm for anything. Still very early. And that's probably not a good example because if you wanted to go to graduate school and study something, it may be that the time for quantum computing has come. It may not be that far off. It may not be that pie in the sky. Maybe, maybe now there will be an upswing in the near future. I, I can't tell. But so you want an idea that's just, it's on the cusp. Like it's just been found out. There's a, this gigantic frontier of ignorance, and it seems like the ignorance will have significant applications to something. Just, there's work that needs to be done that people are not doing, and maybe resources haven't been mobilized in academia around it. The challenge would be you go in and you have to build the field that really doesn't exist. It's not established as mainstream. Now, it takes a very, very smart person to do that. That is not me. I am not Freud. I do not step in and say, let's, let's invent psychology. There's no way I ever do that, ever. Um, but in terms of what I would choose to focus on, um, what I learned about recently is our gut brain. And this is not a new idea. I think this is, people have been talking about this here and there for a few years. There are a few prominent scientists, uh, physicians that are studying it actively, but there is a large set of neurons, a non-negligible amount, like several I think a couple hundred million that line the entirety of our intestines and our gut. And these are connected with a nerve to the brain. And this has massive implications for health. We still don't know much about it. I, I think you, you ask a doctor or a scientist about this, they, they tend to hedge their bets and say, well, we're still learning, but but it seems to be that something like IBS, like an uh, irritable bowel syndrome, a digestive disease may have a cognitive basis. So it's not really a stretch to say you are stressed out. You're experiencing undue anxiety in your life. And for that reason, you're having IBS. That may not be, a, that may not be true, but that is far from being physiologically impossible is one of the ramifications of this. The notion that what you eat affects your mental health. And of course, the microbiome comes with this, that your gut biome, like whatever bacteria you have in your gut, if you eat and those flourish or die out based on what you eat, like if the proportions change, uh, that's going to definitely be communicated to your brain. Apparently, 95% of the serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that is produced in your body, is produced in your gut brain. This is 
absolutely fascinating to me. So I, 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 I've been wondering a lot about the unconscious and dreams and the collective unconscious. There's a lot going on in our brains that I don't think we fully understand. I think this will be the century of neuroscience. And neuroscience is kind of fascinating, but it's locked in the brain. I think it's, I feel like there's a lot of people in that field right now. And it's not clear to me how easy it is to study the brain. I think advances in that are going to be slow. Um, it's going to be a while before we have a, I don't know, what, what would be, I don't know. So you have like the human genome project. Uh, we sequenced the human genome a few years later and Wojcicki founds 23andMe. Okay. Somebody tries to, to capitalize it in that way. And then the technology is somewhat accessible. You could buy one of these home kits, get it sent to you and get results on the internet. I think we're a ways away from having such accessible technology, such affordable technology that you could do the same thing for neuroscience. You know, what does, if you take some, some of my neurons from my brain somehow, what could you learn from studying them? Maybe nothing, but whatever the equivalent is, whatever it is you could say, like let's sample X about your system and we can determine this about you neurologically, that's, we're probably a ways away from that. Um, it's like technology is either too invasive to be done at home or it's uh, non-invasive, but very, very expensive. And it can only be done with very, very specialized equipment that can only be, really be afforded by a medical clinic or a hospital. And there's a lot of people in neuroscience as well. Now, the notion of enteric neuroscience, the notion that there is a, another brain in your gut that is controlling your behavior, is very likely influencing what you are dreaming, is, is influencing what your mental health is, whether you're depressed or anxious. The fact that this ties into diet, the fact that if you know enough about this, you could, you could affect any of these things. You could affect your mental health through what you eat if you understand the causal chain here. The fact that this exists and the fact that we know so little about it, but we know enough to say that there is something substantial that could be investigated here is absolutely fascinating to me. And I think, I think if I go to graduate school, that is where I go. There's one guy who's written a book about this, uh, Dr. Emeron Mayer, I want to say, uh, UCLA. Um, he's a neuroscientist and uh, gastroenterologist. I'd, I'd like to say I'm not. I forget exactly what his credentials are, but he's a professor at UCLA and he's he's actively studying this. There's also a lot of uh, people studying this in France uh, as well. And I forget what institute they're with, but there there are a few pockets in the world where this is happening, and it's niche enough that if you were going to try to study it, I think you you would seek out going to one of those niches and that's where you would start. My only hesitation, of course, into getting anything academia is that I don't like theoretical as much as I do practical. Like I would like to go to university and study something not with the intent of contributing to our theoretical body of knowledge, but in taking the knowledge that I get 
and applying it somewhere to the real world. And it's not clear to me that you could be uh, an enteric psychoanalyst. You know, if you understand this whole connection that you could become a therapist that tells people, hey, you know, based on your symptoms, based on the medication you're taking, here's what you ought to be eating. You know, a um, an enteric neuroscientist, uh, nutritionist of some kind. There's somebody in, I want to say it's in China, but a doctor who practices enteric uh, acupuncture. So there are, there are points on the gut where you, you can treat mental health conditions uh, by um, applying needles to these points. I don't know how acupuncture works, which is to say I don't know why it works. I understand the principle, but I don't understand what the mechanism is that allows it to be uh, effective. I'm not sure I'd ever be comfortable doing that. The notion of somebody sticking needles into me, what happens if they directly hit a nerve? Yeah, this is something I don't like to think about. Something out of a horror movie. Yeah, I, I'm generally not comfortable lying down and somebody sticks a bunch of needles in me. It's, uh, I'd have to be in a lot of pain. Something, be, be, be afflicted with something really, really terrible to just go along with that without a complaint. Yeah, gotta get my mind off of that. Um, oh, it's raining out. Yes, I'm narrating the weather now. You're welcome. So I thought about this some um, last fall. I went shopping for a, a jacket. Um, this is what I do to spend a lot of time in San Francisco. If I uh, just have to get out of my place, it's like I'll find an excuse to go shop for something. Even if I don't plan to buy anything, it's just like I'm going to go look for this. Probably most of America. But I was looking for a, a jacket. Um, kind of a light fall jacket, something that wasn't too heavy, uh, that I could just wear, something mildly stylish. Um, and I found something at, what is it now, Macy's? Yeah, the Macy's up in Union Square. Um, I found this jacket that was actually a fairly loud shade of red. And it had like a uh, diamond pattern to it. I don't, I don't know fashion. But it was like patterned red leather with like black trim. And it, it definitely was very attention grabbing. I was like, you know, red is not your typical. I'm going to try and just fall into the background and not be noticed, which is typically what I do. If I'm going to go get a jacket, I'm looking for something gray, ideally black, maybe white, something that is incredibly neutral. So that if I walk by you, you're not going to be paying attention to me. You're not going to be looking you basically don't have an excuse to start talking to me because of my jacket. Which, you know, in a city like San Francisco is kind of a good survival strategy. You don't want to give strangers a anything that they can easily initiate conversation with you. Because most people who will are probably homeless. And they, they, as soon as they engage you, then it's like, oh, hey, you know, do you have any money? It's like, this is, do you have the time? Do you have a, a lighter or a cigarette? Like, you don't want the time or a lighter or a cigarette. I know what you really want. Uh, so, 
Answer the question, keep moving. Oh, that's an interesting jacket. Hmm, flattery will get you somewhere, some places in this world. Not with me. So anyway, I was thinking, I always do this. I always go for the most neutral thing that will not grab any attention whatsoever. What if I didn't do that this time? What if I got something that was a little bit more flashy, was totally designed to attract attention? I was like, I think this would make me uncomfortable because it would be, people would be looking at me. Um, and I was like, I think maybe I need to lean into that. I was like, I am kind of a shy person. I always have been, always been fairly reserved. I don't like engaging with strangers. Uh, and while it may open up, you know, conversations for homeless people to try and initiate with me so they can try and panhandle, maybe I should embrace that. Maybe I should take the bad with the good, the potential good. You know, lean into being uncomfortable, lean into being not somebody who just blends into the crowd, but standing out. Stand up and, and say, look, I am doing something that is flashy and weird. I need to do more of that. I know that very, very deeply now. I only had a slight subconscious sense of it last fall. When I'm looking at this red jacket in Macy's, so I thought about it. It actually wasn't that much. Uh, it was comfortable. It fit. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it would conflict with most of the clothes I owned uh, at the time. Like the colors, red doesn't necessarily match with anything. Of course, neutral colors for a coat make a lot of sense because you, you can match them with just about anything. Black and any other clothes you, you wear will never conflict. Red is a little bit more sketchy. There are certainly things I couldn't wear with it. But in, in essence, I decided to get it. I thought, you know what, let's, let's do this. Let's lean into the discomfort a little bit. And so I, I did. I didn't wear this every day, but maybe once a week I would put it on and go walking around. And it, I was absolutely not wrong. Uh, this is something that if I was walking along the sidewalk, just about everyone that I passed by would stop and look. Some people quite literally did that. They're walking the other way. They would stop and like look at me walking by. At the very least, their he heads would turn and follow me. Like you could just sense that without even looking for it. And if you looked for it, it was everywhere. And I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, this is kind of making me self-conscious, but whatever. There's no reason for you to be, just go with it. Who cares? Like what they think does not matter. And I, I managed to get, saying that doesn't mean you feel it, but the more I said it, the more I kind of just, just learned to ignore it. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter at all. But at some point, I want to say this was in January, I was out walking along with it, heading home uh, a few blocks from my place. And some homeless person was uh, doing what I, I, I made reference to, like this happens, you know, but he was like, that's a nice jacket, man. And I was like, just thank you, you know, appreciate it. Thanks for the compliment, stranger. I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of heard him say to somebody he was standing next to as I was walking away, I heard him talking behind me. He said, is that the Michael Jackson jacket? 
And I was like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Holy shit. So I went home and looked up the Thriller video. And I, I don't think the person who designed the jacket that I have is, I don't think they, they intentionally looked at that and said, this is what I'm going to design. But it, it almost seems like subconsciously they must have been influenced by that. And that's what led to this. Or maybe it was an accident. But it, it is very much a kind of this, not bright red, but a darker shade of red with black trim. It looks very, very similar. I think if you saw it and you didn't know, that's exactly what you would think. Like, that's the Michael Jackson Thriller jacket. And I was like, damn it all. Because I was looking for flashy. I was looking for head turn. I was looking for something that would grab people's attention, but not because of the novelty of what I was wearing. Right? Like I'm not interested in people saying like, oh, I identify that as a, as a cultural reference. No, just have it aesthetically be that. So I haven't worn it since then, you know, um, kind of, I haven't, of course I haven't been out much. I probably will wear it out again, but, uh, yeah, as far as having a flashy garment of some kind to wear out, uh, that's um. Yeah, that's not going to be my uh, my my main showpiece anymore. How to find something else? Ah. Uh, yeah, just trying to mix it up here. Starting off with grave pandemic technology problems. Transition very very slowly into. Hey, here's my fashion annoyances as of late. Well, all right, getting back to Trump for a second. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. There's actually, so I am definitely not a Trump defender. However, I do kind of. I think there are times when it sounds like I'm defending him. I really am not. Uh, what I do, what I'm doing is seeking understanding. I think there's a phenomenology to Trump that we don't understand. And I think it's very, very important for us to understand. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. There is, I haven't read this yet, but uh, Carl Jung has a book about UFOs and he talks about them as being a modern day mythology. Um, somebody put the question to me, like, what is the difference between something like God and something like UFOs? I was saying, oh, UFOs are silly. There's, there's no way those are true. And I, 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 I didn't concede at any point that I believe literally in any particular theology or even a God, but she was saying, what's the difference? Why would you, why would you ridicule one group of people for believing one thing and not the other? And I said, well, they are different. I think the difference is universality. I think that you can go places in the world and you can find people who believe in God almost anywhere because it's a, it is a universal concept. This, this sense that there is something higher that you cannot explain, I think recurs and it doesn't matter. It, it's not culturally defined. Now I think seeing things in the sky and saying that there, there are spaceships visiting from other planets, that that only happens in certain cultures where we, are building spaceships to potentially go into space. 
Well, then when we have an appreciation of that as being a possibility, do we, do we sort of have this, we, we see un, unexplained, unexplainable things in the sky and we, we attribute them to extraterrestrials visiting. You don't find that in primitive cultures where they're not aware that we can go into space. They're not aware of the, of the, of the cosmos and just how expansive it is. So it's only when you introduce that as a possibility, people start saying, hey, these things in the sky are UFOs. So it's culturally defined. The universality is the difference. But uh, Carl Jung has a book written about UFOs, and in it he does not, what I'm told, um, from what I've gleaned of it in the sources that I have, he does not, he does not take a stance on the matter. He does not say people who are seeing these things are clearly deluded, nor does he concede that, the, that they must be real. He does not say, well, they, they must be a real thing that we must be getting visited. So he kind of abstains from answering the question. And he very much does the same thing with religion. I have read a lot of what he says about Christianity, and he does say, you know, this is clearly not literally true. Stuff in scripture cannot be literally true. And we know that it is self-evident that to, to take it literally is to miss the point. However, however, he treats it as though it were true. He talks about it at great length outside of these haphazard statements where he concedes it's not literally true. And he acts as if it were literally true. He acts as though he acts as though people believe that it's literally true. I think that's the distinction I would want to draw. So I think he treats it as symbolism that some people believe is literally true. And I, I think this is the way I've always tried to think, because I think it's important to think that. If you if you're the kind of person who says, like, look, there's no scientific evidence for God. We cannot establish it. So whoever believes in it is deluded, and that's my standpoint. You are walling yourself off from understanding a very, very significant portion of the human population. You're putting yourself in a very small minority and you're closing yourself off to what might be possible in those realms. You're, you're cutting yourself off from understanding. And the merits of that understanding, I don't know. You can debate that all you want, but I, th I think, I think it's important to look at it and say, look, this is something that a lot of people believe is literally true, and that manifests itself in their actions and their behavior and their belief systems. Like this is very much, this very much permeates culture. It may not be scientifically establishable, but enough people believe it that it will affect your life. It will affect people around you and indirectly it will affect your life somehow. And there are lots of people who have this, this psychological way of being. So if you're going to just be a one of the new atheists and say, I, I believe in everything scientific and empirical. God cannot be real. Therefore, I reject that. If that's the way you set yourself up intellectually, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I do think you are walling yourself off from uh, people who are connected to something or feel connected to something and are acting in the world based on that. Uh, you're basically preventing yourself from developing any kind of understanding with them. There's no empathy to it. It's just they're wrong. It's drawing lines where I don't think we need them.
Now, I think the same thing is true of Donald Trump. I think that the, the question is, why is it that the, the myths about there being razor blades and Halloween candy spread when there was no evidence for it? Most people you talk to look at that and say, oh, yeah, that was that was just an urban legend. That didn't happen. Crocodiles in the sewers? No. You know, this sort of thing. People know these things are not true. Generally, you talk to a person. And yet you 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 could meet people who do do believe in them. Um, maybe they, they're not ready to stand by it and assert it. Maybe they're not they're not going around clamoring about how, yeah, there, there definitely were razor blades and apples, but people just kind of passively believe it and they will passively reference it in casual conversation. And these things just sort of get kept alive that way when there's no evidence for it, when there's no nothing you can point to to back that up. But it's the same thing. You, you, if you dismiss that, then you're dismissing understanding what it is about human psychology that allows these kinds of urban legends to flourish? Why is it that these things spread and persist, even if they're not credible? And I think the same thing is true, and it has important ramifications in politics with the fact that Donald Trump got elected. I think if you, if you immediately put morality on it, if you immediately say, I do or don't like him for these reasons, that's totally fair. But I think there's a separate question where you have to divorce yourself from that and say, what is it that made him get elected? Why was he such an effective person? Like, who are we as a people now that the tactics he used will work? Despite the fact that, despite his track record, despite the sexual assaults, despite all the corruption, despite the things that were patently obvious and exposed publicly that were known Despite this, he still got elected. And all of his outrageousness, all of his uh, just casually racist comments on the campaign trail, despite all that, they were not non-starters for people. People still went to his rallies. He used to have people thrown out. I don't know if people still remember that, but he would have campaign rallies and just throw people out. Um, very, a lot of pomp and circumstance. Uh, around this whole thing. A lot of things that you, you look back on now, you're like, I'm surprised that these were not uh, deal breakers for the constituents that he was talking to. Just the outrageousness. So the question is, what, what is it about him? Like, what was it about his, what are the tactics that he uses that worked? Why was he so effective in communicating to his audience? How is he so effective at building an audience and a wide base of support? If you dismiss him, if you say, like, look, I'm a Democrat and I don't believe with him. I don't agree with anything that he has ever done ideologically in political office. Totally fair. I would not disagree with you. But I think that if you if you draw the line. If you say I, I reject the idea that anyone can believe in God, if you if you say I reject the idea that anybody in their right mind would choose to vote for Trump, then you are walling yourself off an understanding of what it is that led to that happening. And this is, again, the Gemini in me, in me speaking. I'm trying to say there are two sides to everything, and I don't think the two sides are really clearly communicating with each other. I think they're just lobbing stones. 
I don't think we come together and solve problems that way. I'm very, very surprised that self-interest doesn't doesn't bear this out. It doesn't. If you were running as a Democrat, if you're Joe Biden, for example, right now, who is now the Democratic candidate for the 2020 election, whoever you, if you're Joe Biden or whoever it might have been, if you're a Democrat, why were you not leveraging Trump tactics when you were campaigning? Why wouldn't you do that? Are the people that you are campaigning to on the left, are they really that different psychologically from the people on the right? I think either side would like to tell you that there is a big difference, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think 50% of the population is smart and the other 50%, roughly, is dumb. I don't think those two sides are fundamentally different people. I think they share a lot of the same values, and I think that the ideologies just differ in their details. So if you want to have a fighting shot at going up against Trump or just winning on your own merits, why would you not look at the tactics he used and say they were effective and they worked very, very well? Let's try applying the parts of it that worked. Maybe leave out the immoral stuff. Don't go sexually assault women just to make yourself completely equivalent. Uh, don't, don't, don't make yourself a clone of him in, all of, uh, in word and deed. But what was it that worked? Why did it work? If you're not answer, if you're not asking that question and trying to find a good answer to it, um, and you just dismiss it as being, this is just bad. It might just be bad. I started off by saying this is all bad. I, I don't want Trump to win again, but I don't understand why it is that whoever might supplant him this coming November, why they wouldn't be trying to do the thing that worked so well four years ago. It worked very well four years ago, and I don't think we've undergone a, a sea change in our personalities that makes us fundamentally different people. I think we're very much the same, and I think the same tactics would work again. And I, I think that the line from Apocalypse Now that I like to reference all the time is applicable here. It's, it, it is judgment that defeats us. You have to operate without judgment. Okay. Done ranting about that for now. I think I've made the point. But I, I do like the idea of thinking like a phenomenologist. And this is what I so love about Carl Jung, is that he seems to address things not on the basis of they, they're scientifically true or not. And I think I think it's a matter of practicality. I think you have to kind of adapt to that. Um, he applies it to the level of civilization. So you're looking at religion. Okay, what can we say about that? Ignoring for the moment whether or not it's it's literally true or not, and ignoring for the moment whether you believe it's literally true or not, what can we say about its ramifications for human beings? But I think that stems from if you are a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst and you are treating somebody and they come into your office and say, they say, like, I have a, a leprechaun living in my basement or something like that, something that, that can't possibly be true, but they, they come to you and claim that it is. Now, you can't just say to them, like, look, there is no leprechaun, all right? That is uh, some kind of Irish mythology. And I, I'm assuming leprechauns are some sort of Irish mythology. That must be it, right? I don't actually know where leprechauns come from. Fairy tale of some kind? Anyway, if somebody comes to you and says, I, I have this 
problem that quite realistically cannot be true. You know, um, rationally speaking, I don't think it matters. I, I don't think you can just dismiss it and say, like, look, you're, you're, you're wrong about this. You can't just say that to somebody. You have to kind of just start from, okay, this is what they believe. And now what, what can it tell me about the individual who's making this claim? The way I've always tried to understand the world, whether or not I knew this, I think was psychologically. I think that's part of what, that's a large part of what drew me to religion. It was improving on my own, my own way of being in the world. I was trying to become a better person. I was focused on self-improvement and I saw it as a possible end to that or a means to that particular end. But, uh, but more importantly, I, I want to know, okay, if you're familiar with it, it's a kind of Rorschach test. You can, you can talk to somebody about it. If you can converse fluently about theology with somebody who's a Christian, you can get a very strong sense of who they are based on what they tell you and how they tell it to you. It's just this grab bag of tricks and whatever tricks people pull out of script. They go, this is, these are my favorite passages. You can figure out who somebody is very, very quickly. It's a, it's a common, it's common ground on which you can tread. And if you understand how somebody's walking it, you can kind of get a sense of their body language, how they're moving, and you can figure out roughly who they are. This is speculative. I don't know if this is true, but it's one possible example of this. And I suspect this might be true. Uh, the rigidity that comes with religious fundamentalism, orthodoxy, saying that, like, if you look at the Bible, it must literally be true. Um, the story of creation must be literally true. It must have been in seven days. Uh, it happened, I don't know when. The Bible doesn't say six. The Bible does not say 6,000 years ago anywhere in it. You just infer that uh, from genealogies and adding them up. Um, but if you believe that, if you believe that everything must be taken literally, there was a Tower of Babel, there was a flood, there was an ark that contained two of every animal. That sort of rigidity, I think, is compensatory. I think it speaks to a defect of character. I think it means that you are, there's some part of your personality that's very, very flimsy that you don't have a lot of trust in, you don't have a lot of faith in, and you're using this as a skeleton to kind of prop it up. It's like it's like a very weak plant that you have to stake. You put a couple pieces of wood on either side of it and tie them uh, to the trunk of the plant, or the tree, to hold it up and keep it from falling over. I think fundamentalism is something like that. It's a, I am, I am very flimsy. Some aspect of my character is flimsy. Maybe I don't have a lot of faith in human beings. I don't have a lot of faith in my own sense of morality. So I need this. I need this to be solid. I need it to be inflexible because I need it to prop me up. Whatever it is, it has to be something psychological because I don't believe people who choose to be religious fundamentalists who go that way are dumb. I don't think, some of them probably are in so much as any part of the human population is gonna have dumb and smart people in it, but I don't think they're all dumb. So it can't be a matter of intelligence. I think the reason somebody chooses to do this has to be 
something psychological. And I think in that particular case, it's, yeah, it's meant to restore balance to somebody's psyche that's way out of whack. I think a lot of things can be explained that way. It can be understood that way. And this this is what I do like about... There are things I like about the, 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 the so-called new atheists. I may have talked about this before, but the, the, the fact that there were four books that came out about 15 years ago, around the same time. It was like Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, and uh, Sam Harris, the so-called four horsemen of the non-apocalypse, uh, sort of launch an atheist revolution. They sort of spread secular thought by making a very, very strong case against uh, religious ideology. I think that they pave a lot of ground in what they do. And I think what they do is extremely important socially and culturally, because prior to that, like when I was in high school, I think there was a very pervasive sense that if you were not religious and you spoke out against religion for any reason, you were kind of regarded as something of a, a weirdo. At the very least you were, you were a bad person. Like you were not ethical. So the notion that like faith in some religious belief and, uh, and virtue, must go hand in hand. It's some sort of prerequisite. That is not that that needed to be overturned. Like the fact that you could you could stand up as a politician and say, I would like to run for political office, but I don't happen to believe in any particular specific God. I'm not a Christian, for example. That would be a, a major black mark on your record and people would hold it against you. That's still very much true. There is still a stigma attached to it, and I think it would preclude you from holding a lot of political offices now, and it probably will for the foreseeable future, but it's not a given. People are not afraid to say, I don't believe in this or that religion. You know, it's it's not just people who are, it's not just people who are at, you know, Nine Inch Nails concerts, screaming the words of uh, heresy back to Trent Reznor on stage. It, it, this kind of it could be that the seed was planted for all this back then it could be that it was rock music uh, that sort of turned its back completely on religion and uh, made it out to be an enemy that generation came of age then there's this movement in popular literature that says yeah you know philosophically there are problems with religion and here they are it could be that those things just basically one sets the stage for the other but again, it's, it, the problem is, is that it's gone too far in the other direction. Um, they, they, the people that call themselves new atheists are very dismissive of religious people. They just believe that they are deluded and cannot see things correctly, which I think has to happen. I think that's, I think that's inevitable because it's true on the other side. There, there are so many people who are religious that say, like, look, if you're not religious, if you don't believe what I believe, you are just wrong. You are an other to me. There's a line between you and I, and I reject not only what you don't believe or believe, I reject you as a person because I think you have some, um, there's a, there's a major, major flaw in your personality. You're just completely wrong and I don't have to take you seriously. It allows you to be dismissive. It allows you to draw lines. 
uh, which is fair. But that's what's always bugged me about religious people. It kind of bugs me that the anti-religious movement that has cropped up has embraced that same mentality. But I think it does kind of tell you that it's not religion that does that to people. It is just who people are. We like to draw lines. And it's probably a fundamental aspect of human psychology that we don't try and understand the psychology of people that we regard as being in opposition to what it is we value. Eh, probably. But, yeah, I think the conversation needs to be steered in a slightly more intelligent direction. We need to be much more precise about what it is we are talking about. I don't think... I don't think we can look at God and say, like, look, the UFOs aren't real. And if you believe in them, you're just some rube who doesn't understand what is scientifically possible. I actually watched uh, Lee Strobel's film. It's based on his book of the same name called The Case for Christ. I have to say I was sorely disappointed by this. For some reason, I keep I keep seeking out arguments for Christian faith and I keep being massively disappointed by what they present. It's not so much that I want to believe, but I, I go into it with an open mind thinking maybe there's something I missed. Maybe there's a very good point to be had. Maybe there's a very solid cogent argument that's backed up by something and this will help me understand it. I keep going into things thinking maybe that will be the case, and it never is. It never is. And some part of it is Sun Tzu's first rule of war, know your enemy. Like I, I kind of have to understand what arguments might come from the other side, just so I can have, I don't know, more interesting discussions about it. always try to see both sides, particularly on controversial topics. But it's, yeah, it was very disappointing. Um, if you don't know the premise of it, like Lee Strobel, this is a true story. He was a reporter and his wife converted to Christianity. He was very annoyed by this. So he set out to prove that she was wrong and he couldn't. So he ended up converting himself. And... Honestly, the movie, the movie itself is, I don't know how true this is. Like, it would be interesting to know how, how, how accurate this is. But the character of Lee Strobel, his wife converts to Christianity, tells him about it, and he's just immediately an asshole. He's like, what? How could you do this to me? How could you stab me in the back and, like, become a completely different person? I want my wife back. How could you do this to me? And he's a drinker, but this just makes it worse. He just becomes estranged from her, and he drinks a lot. And he yells, and he's just hes just a complete jerk. And he's investigating. He starts, like, looking for evidence. He starts examining the arguments and talking to people. And they're probably all the things that... They're things I've heard, and they're very... They're, they're not solid arguments whatsoever, not in any kind of scientific way. Um, yeah, if it wasn't trying to be scientific, I could perhaps be 
okay with it, with the fact that the film purports to be, let's look at evidence and draw the conclusion, and the conclusion is this metaphysical thing is true. Uh, physical evidence doesn't point to metaphysical truths. You can't do that. But the character is just such a jerk while he's investigating all these things. And it's like in the end, he's like, you know, I'm, I've just been such a, a bad person and it's estranged me from my family, from the people I love. So I'm just gonna, why not? Like, of course he's gonna convert to a religion to, to rebond with his family. Yeah. If you weren't an alcoholic and you weren't a jerk, if you'd just been like, Oh, okay. I'm glad you found something that gives your life a sense of purpose and meaning and it makes you happy. That's great, honey. I'm not going to go to church with you, but uh, please uh, give it up. Go for it. You know, even tell me a little bit about it. Maybe you can't believe it, but if, if you're flexible about it, if you're not rigid, if you're not dogmatic about it, then yeah, it's not a problem. There was definitely that element to it. Of course, the character decides in the end, sure, I got to go that way because, well, yeah, he's a family man and his family does not like him because he's at war with the religion that they're choosing to practice. Don't be an asshole. The lesson I took away from this movie, be open to other points of view. But... What I, what I did notice, that the way the movie starts is they, they're in a restaurant eating. It's uh, Lee Strobel, his wife, and his daughter, who's very, very young. I think she was five. And she starts choking on some food. And another woman, a uh, black woman, who's actually the actress who played Rose in Lost, uh, comes over and is like, I'm a nurse. She takes, uh, the girl puts her, puts her on her knee and manages to knock the food out, you know, saves her life. And uh, this is this is what starts the whole thing. You know, she's um, she talks to Lee Strobel's wife and says, like, you know, I was we were supposed to go to another restaurant, me and my husband tonight, but something told me I should come here instead. And I think that was it. I was meant to come here and save your your boy. Now, the thing is, I don't scoff at this. I really don't. Like, the, the, the notion that somebody, that some people might be attuned to something in the universe and have some kind of intuition around, maybe I should go to this restaurant or that restaurant because there's a reason for me to. Something just sort of steers you that way. Because you're meant to go do something, because you, you need to be called. I don't say that's impossible because those feelings seem to come up. They seem to happen with some regularity. I don't think we can detect them with any scientific means. I don't think we, we can figure out that we can't like put a, some, we can't strap like electrodes to somebody's brain and say like, okay, what are you picking up on from the universe? Like what message is it sending to you? And then quantify it and say, yes, well, you should definitely go here instead of here, or, you know, walk this path instead of this one today because Something's going to happen. The future just tells us that, you know, you're going to you're going to be needed for some sort of intercession uh, in some event that's going to happen. So go this other way. The intuition there, I think, is, is fuzzy and it's difficult to nail down. Um, but I do think those things happen, those sort of gut. You got to do this. 
Now, what, what I think is that these happen all over the world, and I think that people tend to attribute them to whatever the major religion is in the cultural context that they happen to live in. So I think if you're in the United States and this happens, you probably think it's Jesus and that God. If this happens to you in India, you probably assume it's some of the gods of Hinduism. You become a Hindu. So whatever whatever the most accessible spiritual solution is you have that you can pull off the shelf and say, this is what I'm going to use to explain something that I can't explain, that's what people go for. It's a stock thing. It's a convenience. Um, which I think is somewhat unhelpful because it would be great if people who were attuned to these sorts of things, who were really making an effort to get in touch with these, if they didn't explain them with these superstitions as being true. They're inexact proxies. I think people who are thinking about the world scientifically just dismiss these sorts of things and they wouldn't investigate them. Can we hook electrodes up to somebody's brain and figure out a message that they might be receiving telling them? Prognosticating in some way, maybe you should walk this way instead of go to this restaurant because you're needed there. Somehow the universe just knows. If there's any truth to it, there's, there's nobody investigating it because people are either explaining it with the cause that's imprecise or they're dismissing that the thing is even happening to begin with. Again, back to phenomenology. Just because you don't believe in it doesn't mean it isn't happening. And just because you have an explanation for it doesn't mean your explanation is correct. Especially if that thing is imprecise. The explanation you happen to favor is just not you trying to figure anything out for yourself, but just saying, oh, well, you know, there's a church up the street with a cross on it. It must be, that must be it. That must be the answer. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know if uh, you could even investigate those sorts of things in a way that wasn't like some tacky ghost hunter show. Um, ghosts are another one. I know there's been conversations about that as well. Like, uh, yeah. I think you either encounter strange phenomena and think that it's spirits, or you don't believe in ghosts, or you explain it away. And you, and, and you explain it away, some other, some other possibly scientific explanation. But I wonder what there, you know. People are running around on these reality TV shows, like we're going to go ghost hunting, and they take like some, what do they even use? Like electromagnetic detection tools? They say like, here, we're going to turn these on where there's reputed to be spirits and see what we get. And you get some action. Tape recorders pick up some noise. If I was going to be a ghost hunter, I would understand that based on what we know now, there are no tools that are going to help me. None. Nothing that we know scientifically is going to help me figure out ghosts. I think you're starting over from largely from scratch. You, you've got to like carve your own way through that. Be the biggest waste of time, I don't think. It would be like interesting for a little while. I don't know if you can make any progress. Uh, but again, I think it's yeah, you either believe in it in a way that's inaccurate,
or you just dismiss it altogether. I think there's a lot of things, particularly in the Western world, where there, there are things we can't explain. It's either we explain them with some thing that is easy. Oh yeah, just, just lump it under, it's God doing it. Or we don't understand it and we dismiss it. It's it's just, it can be ignored. Okay, I think I've, I think I've beat this horse mostly to death. I will move on. Where was I? Still raining out. Still raining out. I'm still sheltering in place. I'm still eating the same food every day, over and over. Just waiting for liberation. I actually crockpotted last uh, last Friday. I got a um, seasoned. Uh, I don't know, cut of pork, a very large one, and some potatoes and carrots, and just threw that into a crock pot on Saturday, let that go all day, and uh, kind of working my way through it for dinners this week. Uh, that's a massive treat. It's like, it's just, it, I remember making that for Thanksgiving. I remember eating it, and I was thinking, this is not that special of a meal. Like, this is just, a big hunk of somewhat seasoned meat and potatoes and carrots, and that's that's it. I think this does not feel like a full Thanksgiving meal. I'm I'm grateful for it all the same, but it is not. You know, it's it's nothing special. I have not had like any special food. I have not gone out and had like a chipotle burrito or something spicy. You know, something just loaded with flavor because they have to like. The flavors have the addictive things in it, so they just they just load it up and you eat it, and it's just wonderful. I've been detached from any sort of restaurant food or fast food for so long that this crockpot dish, I just made it, and it was like this this wonderful new thing. It was like going out to a restaurant. I cannot cook. Anything I do is not that impressive. I should tell you just how... If I, if I just try to do something stock, not even really trying, but just doing more than I usually do or something a little more unusual, um, unusual for me, the fact that it's just like a revelation, like, oh, yes, this is a wonderful break. I love this. Yeah, that's how boring my eating habits are. I was talking with, I, I talked to a lot of people about this, actually. Like, some people say that they cannot eat the same thing every day. Like, so if, if you go to work and you, they, they're serving macaroni and cheese, you cannot go home and have the same, like, mac and cheese again for dinner. And even if you have it one day, you can't have the same thing the next day. Um, I've never been that way, actually. Like, I could eat the same meal over and over again for a very long time before I got sick of it, if it was something that I wanted to eat. Uh, they used to feed us at work. As far as I know, they still do. Um, but I loved Taco Tuesdays, um, which towards the end were Taco Fridays, which I don't know why. It seems like having Taco Tuesday on Friday is just, it's a, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a slap in the face to everything this country is about. 
or maybe everything that Mexico is about. I don't, I don't know. But taco too, it's great. I could just like beans, rice, some meat, and uh, you know cilantro, onions, a little bit of salsa. You could, I could just throw that in a bowl and just skip the tortilla altogether. That was wonderful. Every Friday, I was like, this is great. I love this. I'm so happy that I'm here. They could have just served that to me every day. Come to think of it, I could, I could just prepare a bunch of rice and beans. I could just make that, make all those things in large quantities, and that would just be a week's worth of meals. I should probably do that. Yeah. If I were if I were smart, I'd be using my time to learn more about food and food science. I'd be watching as much Alton Brown as I could and uh, learning how to cook. Cooking is one of those skills that it's never going to be inapplicable anywhere. Like if you if you want to be a good conversationalist, you want to be at a party and you have things to talk about. Knowledge of food, food trivia, cooking trivia, never irrelevant. It's like it's the universal thing. If I wanted to become a more interesting human being, and in many ways I do, in most ways I do, and I wanted somehow for graduate school to, uh, to tie into that, something culinary I would do. I don't, I, know, I don't know if it would be food chemistry. That sounds pretty boring, actually. Or just going to be a chef. It would be, it would be, it would be really, really interesting to be trained as a chef. I, I have a friend from Santa Barbara and that was in Portland, and he was trained at a very young age as a chef. I think if I had kids, I would probably push them towards that uh, when they were teenagers. I'd say, like, look, you don't have to do this, but uh, if you develop an interest in this very, very young, trust me, this, this, is, this is never, you're never going to look back at having done this in your younger years and regret it. This, this will always be something you can apply for the rest of your life, almost everywhere. I think that's the one thing I would I would really push them for. Like sports, they can skip it. Band, like they, they can just they can just not do anything, you know, um, in terms of curriculars. Yeah, just, or extracurriculars. That's fine. You know, just just go to school and do your thing. Take classes, study. Yeah. But outside of that, you know, you don't have to join debate club or anything. It's like you should really Learn the skills of a chef. You don't have to be a chef, but learn how to cook. Learn the principles of food. Learn the tools. Uh, and learn about nutrition. That's the other thing too. I would I would really like to learn the science of nutrition. Um, I started kind of working through a Stanford University course, which is about that very thing. It's about the science of nutrition done by well, a Stanford professor. So. Of course, it, it it couldn't be that bad. Um, I think that is also hand, handy knowledge to have, understanding how to feed yourself. Um, I watched a very interesting documentary about food lately. Um, and this was about, uh, I forget her last name, but her name was Alice, uh, around UC Berkeley's campus back in the, in the 60s. Um, and there's a countercultural movement to resist what is becoming big agriculture at the time. So she starts a restaurant called Chez Panisse, 
Um, there's a chef that comes in and, and prepares very, very novel food. It was unlike anything. This is a generation of people who were raised on TV dinners, prepackaged, just processed stuff. And they open a restaurant where they're, they're making these absolutely fabulous dishes. It was like nothing that had ever been seen in the States before. And it, it sparked this whole movement of, wow, we, we can actually get delicious food from restaurants. It doesn't have to be just stock stuff that is coming off of the, the normal farms uh, that we're getting here. Like uh, Tyson, I guess, would have been a, a big player. If not then, then they are now. And this, this required her to not only start a restaurant and prepare a menu and start serving people, but she also had to build an entire supply chain. Uh, she was looking for ingredients that were more novel, not just the, the major cultivars that were being put out by big ag, if you will, but she had to find in California, Northern California, close to where, close to UC Berkeley in the Bay Area, uh, where she could find ingredients, where she could source them from and bring them in, you know, in a timely fashion, use them before they spoiled. She had to coordinate this whole thing. And so this, this, this restaurant gives rise to this, this notion of sourcing local ingredients uh, to make novel dishes. And of course, this starts in California, like so many things, and now it, it has spread to other parts of the country. This is very much a thing that's being done, which is great. I personally don't appreciate food that much. I, I appreciate that this is happening because I don't, I don't agree with the way we use subsidies, the way the United States government gives subsidies to the biggest agricultural suppliers. Um, I think there were historically good reasons for that, and I think those have been obviated. They just seem like a what used to function as uh, a price stabilizer, um, a price control, so as to make sure that uh, supply did not disappear or dry up because of falling prices has more or less morphed into a barrier to entry. It very much is a big industry, so I, I don't like that. But I also am not the kind of person who goes out and looks for novel food in, you know, let's go try this restaurant and they source, they source local food. Maybe, maybe someday. To be honest, I think that's why I would like to move to a different part of San Francisco, where I am now. And Soma is very, very industrial. It's very, uh, very tech focused. Um, I, this is not the area where if you're, if you're going to open some novelty restaurant, you would do it here. I think if you go over to the west side of the state, like where I was looking to move prior to the pandemic, uh, a place like Nopa or Haight-Ashbury, there's going to be more local places that are doing, doing, you know, environmentally sustainable things and economically sustainable things, um, supporting local communities by starting restaurants. Like that's more likely to be happening many other places in the city and not where I currently live. This is, this is definitely one of the reasons I'd like to move so I could explore those sorts of things. Yeah. So the, Job search, back to the whole job search. I do know that I need to, I do need to look for a job. There's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem here because I, I, I really only feel motivated to play around with new technologies when I have something 
when there's a big project that I'm involved with and I want to contribute to it and I'm working with people on it, uh, that would be a new job. If I could just go into a place, somebody said, look, look, tomorrow you can start working for X company. You're going to be playing with these cool technologies to solve these cool problems. I'd be like, cool, I'm in. Let's go. If that were all there was to it. If it was just that simple, like walking into a restaurant and like just saying, like, look, uh, I want to be a dishwasher. And they just hire you. Uh, that I probably would have done that by now. Part of it is I'm trying to be careful about not going to work for the wrong restaurant, so to speak. I want to make sure that I become a dishwasher at the place, a place I really like because I want to be in it for the potentially for the long haul. What's most likely going to be the long haul. But the problem is, is that in order to, in order to interview, I have to prepare. And that means playing around with a lot of technologies, like building things. Uh, and I, right now I don't really have a project to work on and I'm having a lot of trouble. I think largely because of this shelter in place and being isolated, I do not want to stare at a computer all day. I don't want to just sit down and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's just focus on all this tech stuff. I'm having a very difficult time motivating myself to do anything, let alone something that that is just that pragmatic. And of course I'm going to have to, I mean, I'm going to have to man up and just say like, look, it doesn't matter if you want to or not, you've got to do this. And it doesn't matter if you, yeah, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's your duty to provide for yourself. I, I really should do that before I have a ways to go before this becomes a, a real threat. But before I run out of rent money, um, I don't even want to get close to that point. I would like to start working before then. Plus, I think I think a, a job would very much alleviate the boredom. Um, I do wish, in some ways, and I think this is this falls into the category of be careful what you wish for, that I, I really had not left my job before this had happened. I think if I had stayed on and I was still working, that that would be a good use of time. And it, when this is over, when we can finally venture back out, then I could search for the new job. I could go out and look for something in a way that is proper. And I wouldn't be, that, that search wouldn't just be something conducted entirely online and it wouldn't be the only thing going on in my life. Uh, and I would be able to go out and, and socialize as part of that process. And coming on board at a new company wouldn't just be something that would happen strictly remote either. I really, that that's another part of the resistance to me, the fact that if I join a company, I'm basically going to be onboarded and I'm going to be meeting a bunch of people that I don't know virtually. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who said that they, br they bring on new hires now and they do like the, the Brady Bunch Zoom lunch. Everybody just kind of has their meal, sits at their computer and they all just kind of talk to each other. I don't mean that's just that's just the worst aspect of that's that's all the stuff I don't like about group conversation and none of the benefits. Because it's possible for you to like branch off. You say like, look, I want to have a one on one conversation with so and so. Just do that for like a couple minutes. 
turn to the person on the other side of you, you know, do the same thing. Then join the group again, maybe throw out a comment that everybody will laugh at or appreciate. You know, there's, there's more flow uh, with this sort of thing. And it, it's, uh, yeah. I really dread the idea of coming on board for, for many reasons uh, in that kind of environment, in that kind of situation. Um, I feel like if, if, this is a pretty big if, I don't think it's going to happen, but if in June, San Francisco is able to open back up and that we, we can now go to offices. And I feel like at some point that was the case. Before this completely went to shelter in place, before everything got shut down, there was a constraint for a brief period of time where it was like, you, you can't go to gatherings of strangers where you're mingled with people you don't know, but you could still go to work. People could still go to offices because those were people you were in contact with anyway. And if somebody gets sick there, then I mean, even if your entire office gets sick, it's going to be somewhat localized, I think was the thinking. There was a point at which this wasn't prolific enough or that was a, a grim possibility. It wasn't something that needed to be considered um, wasn't a showstopper. Now it is, of course. Everybody's working from home. But I wonder if we'll get to a point where, like, some people can go back to work in offices, and there is leeway. You're, you're interviewing. You can have a person in, and this is the way interviews could be conducted. It wouldn't just be all online. And there's a big part of the interview process for me that is largely based on on body language, paralanguage. I'm looking at the person, I'm sizing them up, I'm getting a sense of how they're acting, how they're reacting to what I'm saying. Like this is part of how you conduct interviews. If I'm just flying blind, if I'm staring at someone's face on Zoom and they're asking me questions, it's hard to get a read on somebody. It's hard to get the answers to the questions that you really can't ask, but you can get the answers if you know how to look for them. And this is very, very important data when you are looking to get a job at a place that you might spend a year or two at. This is critical. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I would like to wait until that becomes a real possibility before I decide to uh, seriously pursue anything. Again, I can't wait indefinitely. I, I know that it would be fiscally irresponsible not to uh, start tackling these sorts of things. And I have been learning. I have been cracking open the algorithm books a little bit, brushing up on Python, learning about the tools that I might want to. But I mean, opening up a book and kind of reading about things is not quite the same as, as doing it. And doing it for yourself at home on hobby projects is nothing like the experience you would get if you were working with people on some, some big project at a company that serves a real mission. They're just, they're not the same. The, the, the motivation behind one is not nearly as strong or propellant as the other. So, I mean, yeah, no aspect of this is ideal. I'm kind of being stubborn because it's not ideal, but no, I, I guess I can get away with that. I'm being mostly productive with my time outside of that, but it is a, it is a bit disappointing. It's a bit of a bummer.
but you know, I still do give myself credit. I give myself a lot of credit for that, actually. I, I realized mid-February, it's time to leave. You've been at this job for three and a half years. It's been a good run, but you, you should leave. Every, every sign you might look at, every guidepost that you look at, if you, if you really evaluate it objectively, yeah, it's time. If you want to grow at all, um, you should get out of this environment, if for no other reason than just psychologically. I, I've never read anything about that. I'd be curious to know what the impact is there. If you, if you stay in one job for 10 years versus, let's say, the, the same person who goes to, let's say, five jobs in 10 years. So every two years they switch. What kind of psychological impact does that have on the two individuals? Like, how, how do they differ? I mean, does that have an effect or is it just that it is causal, like one kind of temperament will seek out doing one versus the other. I don't know, it's hard to answer these questions. It's hard to have like controls in psychologists because there are, there are so many different temperaments. People cannot be easily categorized. So you can't even say like, well, these two people are comparable in psychological makeup. Let's, let's do an experiment. One is the control and one is the, uh, the test case, but you're, there are controls and test cases like that's it's very very hard to do i don't know how people do psychological research but i i definitely crave more novelty i i i would love to go into a company where there's mobility if not upward then just laterally where I, I can kind of move around and try different things and I'm not just on the same team uh, and, and stay there for four years or five years and just be happy as a clam because I keep working with new people on new kinds of problems and I'm, I love what I'm doing the whole time or most of the time. Every job comes with some, okay, there's paperwork. Every job's got paperwork, red tape. But I don't know. I, I don't know if that uh, don't know if that environment exists. And of course, I would like to. I think I've talked about this before, but I would like to ultimately move away from tech. I'm not sure, like tech itself, like the the, the whole notion of apps. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, the whole ride sharing thing, like Uber, Lyft. not operating according to any sort of ethical code that I, I think the, the CEO of Lyft, I feel like he is an Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, I know how you pronounce her name. Atlas Shrugged. Like if you, if you start a company that's gonna have a massive, massive impact on the economy, and that is the underlying ideology that's their their guiding set of values that come from Atlas Shrugged or or, or you know Anthem, basically and and Rand's catalog of stuff. That that is that is problematic. I think that might be the perfect storm. 
I don't think that that mentality is bad in and of itself. I really don't. Like, I think if you... I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what the line is. This is what's always happened. Specialization. Figure out how to automate things. Because this makes things more and more profitable. But at what point do you cross the line to where just this pathological pursuit of capitalism, like this, this, it's all self-interest and whatever you do that's self-interested, if you can profit by it, then you've earned that profit. Therefore, you're entitled to it. And I'm not summarizing this philosophy very well, but the, the, that sort of school of thought, when that meets with the technology that we have now, that is, I think that is a kind of economic perfect storm. Yeah, it's not really immediately obvious to me. Under those circumstances, in light of current technology, that the, we can just let capitalism keep running the way it has been. I don't want to get down on capitalism because I think it, it does do things very, very, some things very, very well. I just think that yeah, it might be that it was a, a wonderful system um, and technology has uh, kind of perverted what its ideal looks like. Maybe not its ideal. I think its ideal would put humans more at the center, but its manifestation in our world, I think technology has perverted that and made it a very problematic economic structure. I think if you're going to be an economist, like that, that would be what we need. We need somebody to generate new ideas around this. And I know that people are. Um, but I think coming up with a, with a, a path forward is very, very difficult. Not least of all, because I think there's a lot of large blobs of political clout that are hard to influence for the average person that more or less have the existing system in its clutches. This whole, I feel like I'm just going in a circle here. Start off with Trump, move on to tech, then to the economy. Then I kind of revisited Trump and then tech, and now I'm back on economics. I'm not really sure I'm contributing anything to what I said earlier. So yeah, time to just, I've just moved forward. I have a, uh, on my terrace and it is, uh, it's raining. So I haven't been out there today. Uh, I have a, a rocking chair, um, which is like an outdoor, it can handle water. Uh, fold-up rocking chair. So if you, if you wanted to go camping, and I, I guess it'd be car camping, and you wanted to take a rocking chair with you out into the wilderness, this is basically a rocking chair you could fold up and carry out with you. Uh, it's very, very comfortable. Like If you're looking for something that's portable, that you could use outdoors as, I mean, you could use it indoors. Um, it is very, very handy. I would look into getting a an outdoor rocking chair. It's an amazing idea.
we had one uh, in the house I lived at before I left Santa Barbara. I was there for a few months with some friends. Uh, I had one of those, and that was the the piece de resistance, you know, in uh, in our living room. We had a bunch of chairs. They were just like, you know, square, static chairs. And then there was this rocking chair, which was always, yeah. It was mine, so whenever I was there, I was like, yeah, I'm sitting in that thing. Um, my roommate would always claim it when he had friends over. It would be like his throne. Yeah, I'm the alpha dog here. I got the, I have the the rocking chair. Y'all can sit in the chairs and on the, the couch. I do wonder how he is doing too. My uh, friend, this is my friend that I went to France with. He uh, he said like, look, I'm I'm going to France in uh, a few months. Do you want to come? You can just come crash at my place. Uh, it was an amazing trip. I think I've talked about that before. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I was roommates with him, um, for a few months before I left Santa Barbara. We lived in a, in a house, uh, me and one other, a couple other people actually that he knew. And, uh, the house was right next door were coworkers and some friends of both of ours. Actually, I knew a couple of them from before, but they, they all worked together. Um, at a company in, uh, I think it's in Carpinteria. I won't say the name of it, but it's, it's, if you're looking to get a job in tech down and around Santa Barbara, it's one of the major options right now. Uh, but they all worked there. Um, but yeah, that, that of course situation fell apart in February about four years ago. And I have not talked to him since then. Uh, a bit of a falling out, I'm afraid, on account of what happened. I do wonder what he's up to and how he's doing. I imagine it's very much the same. Probably a party animal. Um, just living his life. I do miss him as a friend, though. I think he was a very good friend. I think he was maybe one of the better friends I've ever had. I, I had some sort of awareness at the time, like going back, let's say seven years. I think I was a somewhat selfish, self-absorbed person. It's pretty clear in hindsight that I was trying to be a good person, but failing in a few ways. I don't think I was being attentive or empathetic to people around me. As much as, uh, as much as an adult should be, you know, and just nothing had happened in my life to cross correct that. Uh, and despite that, he was actually a really good friend to me. Like he, he, he sensed that he knew it, but I think he also kind of sympathized with me. Um, he put up with me being selfish and, uh, you know, being off in my own little world most of the time, not quite being on the same wavelength with people. He was like, yeah, you know, it's just Jim. You know, he's a good guy. But, uh, you know, he's a little, a little too in his own head. He was so tolerant, so patient, and so accepting. Um, 
It wasn't a perfect. He wasn't perfect. Uh, I, I would wager he's still not perfect. Everybody's got their issues, but but I, I give him credit for that. I appreciate that he let me into his life as much as he did. Like, hey, we're going to France. You want to come to you know crash at my parents' house? Like the little the little place we have, you can just have one of the beds for like five weeks. I don't know if I knew him that well, but uh, you know he treated me like family. I've opened up like a, an email editor a few times, um, just like to write a note thanking him, and I I haven't quite brought myself to send it yet. I, I will do this. I haven't talked to him because I'm kind of I'm hoping one day he'll he'll come to his senses grow up a little bit and he will apologize for what happened between us because it's definitely on him. Uh, I was right to break off contact and to be mad at him for what happened. I was very justified in that and he never apologized. Um, so I'm hoping for an apology. I don't think I'm ever going to get that. And in, in lieu of that, or sorry, in, in the absence of that, if that never comes, I'm not going to forgive him. But at least I won't offer forgiveness. I probably will make peace with it myself at some point. But I do. I would like to, like, despite that, reach out and just say, like, look, I'm still mad, but thank you for being, like, a solid dude before that. You know, largely. I think you, I appreciate our friendship. It meant a lot to me. Um, thank you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're hope things are good and continue to be so. Uh, but I don't know. It just hasn't been the right time yet. And I haven't, I haven't thought of the right things to say yet. He was interesting because he got married at a very young age. Like he, like when he was in college, he was in college and married to someone. And he was married for like seven years and broke it off in his mid-twenties. And then he and then he was just single. When I knew him, he was about 30 years old, approaching 30. And he was just living a very swinging bachelor life. Uh, that was really, really strange. Like, he did it in reverse. He was living the college lifestyle when I knew him and in college, apparently he had a wife and was living like a married person would. Kind of did it in reverse. I guess I understand. It was the parting that got us into trouble, but maybe everybody needs, maybe everybody needs that phase where they're just breaking out. Maybe if you, if you don't have the college experience, and I don't mean literally going to university. I mean, if you don't, if you don't just throw responsibility to the wind and go a little bit too far in whatever, enjoying yourself, doesn't have to involve alcohol or drugs, but just like throwing caution to the wind and just being disinhibited. You know, I, I, I wonder if that's just a phase everybody needs. 
And if it isn't a phase anybody needs, I don't know why so many people do it. Maybe just, I don't know why you would ever want to have that experience. I think it's dangerous to have that experience. If you realize, look, I can get away with this. That's just reinforcing all kinds of bad behavior. Like I was just in college for four years. I didn't have to do like hardly anything. And now I'm in the real world. Like I don't want to get a job. A friend of mine once made a point that, uh, you know, high school and college, you couldn't actually do this. It doesn't make sense, but they, they should be reversed. Like high school should just kind of be like, you take classes here and there. You can kind of schedule them throughout your day. It's not that structured. Nobody cares if you skip classes. Nobody's like taking attendance. Like high school is just like college. You just like whatever, fast and loose. And college would be more like high school and that it's more regimented. Things are more, you're, you're expected to go to classes between this and this hour of the day. And if you're not there, you're penalized. Like this, this makes more sense in terms of building up to what the real world is. If you're going to do it in stages, because high school is very much like the real world. I've heard that it's not an accident that there are bells in uh, in high schools or just schools in general. I guess there's a bell telling you when you should be here or and, and when you're free to go. You know, it's, it's like, well, why not just put a steam whistle inside of every high school? It's it's pretty transparently preparing you for. But college is this weird aberration where you just. If, if your parents are paying for it, even if you, even if you're working to pay for it and you're racking up debt, you know, or, or paying it down because you have a job or something, it's it's still very fast and loose as far as what you what your responsibilities are. I don't know, but. Um, if, if part of college is uh, let's just go nuts and get drunk, go to keggers and stuff, which I think for a lot of people, that's a part of college, not everyone. Uh, that is not something you would want to get out of the way in high school. People are too young for that. Quite frankly, people are too young to really be drinking because of brain development uh, in in college, too. It's just not something you should be doing. People are still going to do it. Um, I don't know. It's very, very weird. In our culture, there isn't really a right of manhood. There is no, you have to go out and do this, and then you're acceptable to the tribe. You know, you, you've earned the right to be a man because you underwent this passage. And it was so grueling that you discovered things about yourself that you never would have found out otherwise. Just the thing that psychologically separates you from your dependence on your parents. You do this. You have to go out and kill a tiger. And maybe you don't come back from that. Maybe the tiger eats you. Maybe you die for some other reason. But uh, you have to go do it. And you really only become a man if you come back from that grueling test. We don't really have anything like that in our culture. Maybe time was it was serving in the armed forces, but that's been 
that that's definitely been I don't know, that's definitely fallen by the wayside since the the draft. As soon as people got the whiff that the people in charge were abusing the power to draft soldiers and to send them into combat. Like we're doing that in Vietnam. Then uh yeah, people stop trusting. We shouldn't give people the power. That's really a bummer. I definitely think you 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 couldn't trust Nixon. Thing is, there there are people. If if you're if you're a couple of parents and you are lying to your child about whether or not you are in love, what's going on? I think the child knows. Mommy and daddy are angry at each other, and they're not. They don't have a loving relationship. The child knows. I don't think it matters what you say. I, I think you can only control how you say it. Only so far. I think there's still an understanding there. There's an intelligence there that we don't give credit to. And I, I think, I, I'm pretty sure it was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote about this, but the notion of the TV anchor that you watch on TV, if he has a bias when he's talking about politicians, if he's Republican or Democrat, and when he's talking about the other side, he's going to exhibit different body language. So if there's a politician he doesn't like, millions of people who are watching this across the country are going to pick up on it and are going to be influenced by it, whether they're aware of it or not. The effect might be subliminal, but there is a very real effect. And I think this goes beyond conspiracy theory at this point, but there were plans to possibly pull out of Vietnam in 1968, in the fall, and these were tabled because of the election. Um, And of course, Richard Nixon is complicit in this. I think if you're a politician and you do something like that, and you're going on TV and saying, yes, we have to keep fighting because it is necessary. There's, There's no way we can achieve peace. There are no peace talks going on. If you're just lying through your teeth about things, I think people know it. And I don't think it's that politicians became more dishonest in the 20th century. I just think that the technology to broadcast what a politician is saying en masse to everyone with such clarity became a thing. I mean, if you're going to point to anything and say, what is it that destroyed trust in our institutions? It's that. It's that people were suddenly able to monitor directly what a politician was saying instead of getting it from a newspaper where you're just reading the words. People can start picking up on what when a politician is lying, whether they're aware of it or not. This is going to breed distrust, and it's going to breed distrust in not just that politician, but politics in general. And now you have the internet where anybody has a voice. So anybody picks up on this, they can make up whatever story they want in their head and put it out there. And if it's, it doesn't matter if it's necessarily true or not, if it has the force of the urban legend of the razor blades and the Halloween candy, it will spread. 
And so this is where we are, and this is why we have the president that we do. I would be willing to wager. Again, it's technology. Technology and other aspects of society playing off each other in ways we don't fully understand. And it's all psychology. Probably. Maybe not. What do I know? Yeah, I'm just spitballing here. It's not like I've read all these things or investigated them and I'm telling you, here's the way it is. I'm just, you know, just throwing out thoughts. That's the, that's the wonderful thing about this. Just see where my brain goes. Some some friend of mine reached out to me yesterday. I got a text. It was just like, your your podcast is ridiculous. And then like the, the laughing face. I was like, well, well, thank you for listening to it. And that uh, I'll take ridiculous. It's certainly meant to be ridiculous. Like there's, there's not like, not like there's any effort going into this. What? Soever. So sure. Yeah. Uh, anyone even listening to any part of it. Yeah, I see that as being a success. Sure. Why not? It's a victory. I'll count it that way. Ah, so what else? Well, as far as the job hunt goes, this has actually been pretty helpful uh, talking through all this because I think I understand what my objections are, my hesitations, why it is I'm, I'm really remiss to, to leap full-fledged, full force into looking for the next gig. I think I... Yeah, talking through it, I have a better sense now. I... Uh, I had a couple conversations so far since I left uh, my last job. And yeah, I guess I could talk a little bit about recruiters. I think there's a lot you could say about recruiters. Um, I have had some very, very positive experiences with recruiters, like the ones that I've <clears throat> dealt with at length. They seem to be I mean, they're great people, and I think they're just trying to do a job, and I think they're trying to uh, serve both the company that they're recruiting for and the people they're recruiting uh, judiciously. They're treating them both like human beings. Um, I think that's why I've chosen to work with the ones that I have worked with at any length. Um, but I remember... I, w I was working with a recruiter when I arrived in the Bay Area, and that that I won't go into at any length. But I I came away from that thinking, never again. That that was bad enough. It was unhelpful. Uh, it set me back. Um, and it was just it was just awful. Uh, in, in essence, they they applied for jobs that I told them I would not take if I got offered the job at the company and you know it was, i was kind of like they said okay well we got you an interview would you go and do it i said well look just to be clear i will do this for practice but if i get any of these job offers i'm not going to take them some of them on principle some of them because they're just not what i'm looking for you need to understand that oh yeah that's fine go in do the interviews get an offer and it is a it's a fight. 
like this happens a couple times and just like, well, we got you this job. We lined it up for you. Why aren't you taking it? Like, well, I told you I'm not going to take a job offer from this company. I thought I made that abundantly clear. And I think I made you acknowledge that before I went in. Did I not? Were you just hoping something would change? I think so. Uh, Recruiters don't have to look out for the interests of the people they are recruiting because they do not work for you. They work for the companies that are retaining them to find talent. So it doesn't matter uh, necessarily what you want. They're just trying to get as many people in and placed as possible because that's what they make money on. And so, yes, uh, never again. After this experience, I sort of came away thinking, I'm just going to deal with principles only. And I've talked to a couple of recruiters now for a couple of companies that I was interested in. They, people reached out to me. And what I did was I went on LinkedIn and I said, okay, take the recruiter's name, find their profile. And, and you know, where do they work? Do they work for the company in question? And in both these cases, they did. Their, their LinkedIn profile said, I've worked for this company for over a year. Um, at least if you looked at their LinkedIn profile, you would say they're very much an employee of the company. They're, they're in-house, they're in HR, and they are working for the company in question, which is who I want to be talking to. Um, after having talked to both of them and kind of what's happened, what's played out, I don't think that they actually do. I, I, I don't think either person I spoke to uh, really was uh, an agent of the company that their LinkedIn profile purported them to be uh, working at. I think they were third party uh, who's just focused on one company. And so that's what they have for, for I guess, publicity purposes uh, on their LinkedIn profile. I mean, it's frustrating because I've had a couple of conversations where the recruiter is kind of like sizing me up and I'm, I'm trying to size up the company and you don't get helpful information about what the company is or the culture if the person's not actually there. Like they can't give you first name account. It's pretty, pretty obvious when they're just trying to gloss it over and say, well, you know, I don't know because I'm not, I don't work in the technical side of things. Yeah, but you, you know the company, right? And nothing has really come of either one of these. The, the one I did back in uh, February, just kind of exploratory. All right, let's see how this, let's see how this goes. Um, I, I spoke with the, the, the recruiter in question. She's like, okay, well, I, I have your resume. Uh, let me take it to the three departments that I think you might be a good fit for, and we'll we'll see who's interested in you. And none of the three were interested. She was like, yeah, it's just a hard no from all of them. Uh, and this was, I'm pretty sure, not on the basis of anything I said when I was talking to her. Uh, so the, the 30 minutes I spent on the phone with her were pretty much just a waste of my time. She's just looking for more bodies she can throw at the hiring managers at the company. She th- there's, a, there's a chance, she thinks, if um, 
she, she, she can't look at my experience and know that I have the pertinent experience because she's not technical, but I am just, uh, you know, a resume, one more person she can include that has some chance of being placed, which means some chance at a fee. So it's absolutely worth her time to. So I, I, I've come to learn that this is apparently a practice now, like the, the outside recruiting firms, if they're, if, a company is outsourcing its recruiting and sending out headhunters. The headhunters themselves will make it look as though they are working, as though they are principals at the company, but they uh, don't. Yeah, and this is just kind of annoying. Um, but it is what it is. It is the way of the world. And I think you should really only spend so much time complaining about what the world is. Uh, I'm just not going to respond to anyone. Like I think you just apply for jobs, put together your own resume, learn how to negotiate on your own behalf, learn how to sell yourself and just, yeah, that stuff you can do very easily. Save yourself, invest the time in that instead of talking to recruiters. I think it's very easy to do. Ah, oh, yeah, this whole thing. Back here to where we are. Yes, still sheltering in place. It is still raining outside. There's still no end in sight. This is still just madness. And I do understand, yes, the protesters. I'm actually surprised we're not seeing more protests. People are like, how could people be so dumb? Uh, people, it's not a matter of dumb versus smart. It's a matter of how long will people remain in a situation that is just psychologically uncomfortable and completely detrimental before all of this blows up into our faces. I feel like that's where we're headed. I feel like if things do not resume soon, this will eventually boil over. And uh, I'm a pretty patient person. I really am extremely patient. I'm still feeling like, you know, it's been a couple months. I've, I haven't been able to leave my place and lead a normal life. And it doesn't seem like the people in charge are dealing with that and getting us back to normal in any sort of systematic, coherent way. If they are, they're not really being communicative about it. And this is, uh, as I started out this whole thing saying, this is starting to bother me. Not a lot. I'm certainly not going to call for mutiny just yet. But I, I do appreciate the fact that most people out there are not as patient as me. And while most people, I think, appreciate stability, I think people understand that it's in their best interest to ride this out. You know, some protesters notwithstanding, that's only going to last so long. This, this is very much the, 
I don't think anyone at the top really understands that right now. That the psychology here is that you have you have a champagne bottle that's corked up and it's being shaken. And it's really just a matter of time before that thing pops. And what comes out, I you don't want that to happen. But it will start happening for individuals. It's already started happening. We're already seeing this. People going out and protesting at the state capitals. It's not the state's fault, I don't think. But of course the protests are happening. I wonder. We will see. This is uncharted territory. All of life is a dress rehearsal for a play that will never air. This is a trial of one with no precedent. We have nothing to base any prediction on. It's nuts. What have I been doing? So, uh, yeah, I've been on Bumble. Bumble date, to be precise. Like I'm talking, reaching out, swiping through women's profiles. Um, how long have I been doing that? I've been doing it for like maybe a month now. That's actually been going on for a while. Like there's actually a ton of people on there. I, I think, I, I think Tinder is mostly a profile graveyard. I don't think very many of those are active. And, and so many of them were just people who were passporting in from foreign countries to different cities. Um, they were not, Maybe maybe half, two-thirds of the people on there were local. The rest of them were just, they're sheltering in place in Russia. And they're like, let's, let's talk to guys in, uh, in San Francisco. It's uh, on the surface not a bad idea, but uh, it's not really what I'm on Tinder for. I'd like to meet people who understand San Francisco and want to talk about that. Yeah. But there's a lot of people on Bumble. Um, unfortunately, most of them are precluded from me. I, I skipped over almost everyone. Uh, yeah, because what I'm looking for is a rather odd combination. Like anybody who is looking for a relationship, for sure. That's the end goal in mind. Uh, and wants children, for sure. It's a no. I'm just leaving those out of the equation. If you want a relationship, okay, assess everything else. I'm kind of, I think, eventually looking for a relationship. I don't want to force anything. I'd rather just see how things play out organically. Uh, so being judicious about who I, you know, if somebody wants a relationship, just be very careful. If it's unspecified, then it's like assess everything else. You know, are, do we seem compatible just based on the profile or even is there a profile? Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so far I've been talking to two people with any regularity. One situation, like one person, the conversation has moved outside of the app. And we talk pretty regularly now. Like we text 
um, yeah, for pretty much daily. I had a lot of common ground there. Like we, we could talk about a lot for a long time and we have, uh, just for now, just as friends, cause we don't have any idea. You have to meet somebody to know. And there's one other person in the app that every couple of days, one of us will send a response to the other. Like it's not, it's not a very tight loop of communication. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like I've definitely matched with other women who do not message me. I've matched with women who message me and I send what I think is a, like, Hey, uh, this is just a casual response. Like I'm not, I'm not going to put on airs or be over the top sexual or anything. I appreciate your question. Here's an answer. And here's a question right back at you. And that's usually where it dies. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just, I don't know how to use these things properly. I don't know what it is. Um, I, I, I do think that from the conversations I've had with people, I'm definitely not a dating app guy. Like it seems like there are, I, I don't know. People are, I don't know. The kinds of people you find on the dating apps are at least like if you're a woman, like the men that are available on there, that's probably not a very good subset of the population. And uh, that's, I mean, that that's abundantly clear to me. Like I would not be on the dating apps whatsoever for any reason at all, if not for the pandemic. There's the, I, I, I realized a few months ago, there's just, there, this, this is not the way to do this. It's the wrong the wrong solution it's there's a much bigger problem than just people need to meet other singles and we're just going to solve that by throwing them together on an app and i don't know how true this is like the thing is people do say why is it the generation z people who are younger like i think 25 and below like teenagers to 25 year olds, like that generation sociologically, why is there so much mental illness in them? I can come back to this, but of course people look at it and they say, well, it's because they're on the internet. It's because they're on Facebook and Instagram and they're living through these devices. And that is just, that is destroying their brains. It's destroying their mental health. I don't know how true any of that is. I feel like people just say, well, there's a problem and uh, Hey, it seems to, have gone up with the internet. Like it's increased with the internet. That must be the, the cause of it. Um, so yeah, again, correlation is not causation. And I feel like it's, uh, it's hard to substantiate anything like blaming the internet for a psychological phenomenon in an age group because oh, you don't have a control there. There isn't like a group of, of, Generation Z people who don't have exposure to these things. And if there is, there's too many other conflating factors that you can't compare the two groups. And besides, I'm not sure that the psychology of, I guess it's a developmental thing. I guess if you're a teenager and you grow up with Facebook, that's going to have a, a bigger impact on who you are as an adult than somebody who comes into it when they're 50 and starts using it. 
So maybe you can't make those uh, generational comparisons. Maybe the, the age demographics do matter. So you can't quite compare the samples. I don't know. But I, I think it, it's, I think social media is just the answer for everything. It's like, well, hey, this thing I can't explain happened. Why did it happen? Oh, it must have been God. Okay, well, there's some problem in society. Society is messed up in some way. It's probably social media because that's the, the new kid on the block that is in every aspect of your life. I don't know, but by the same token, I do hear people talk about the dating apps and people say that people just do not take relationships seriously anymore. People are not looking for a long-term partner because the next thing, the next fix is so accessible. It's just, you can, you can say, Hey, thanks. That was great. You sleep with a girl and it's just on, it's just back to swiping, trying to find the next one. And the people say this has destroyed traditional dating. It's destroyed the notion of you, you should be looking for somebody you're compatible with long-term and focus on building something with that person. You're only dating to the extent that you can try to feel out how compatible you are long-term. Now, what I'm hearing, and I don't know how true this is, is that this is the way people are using the apps. They're, they're not using it to assess long-term compatibility. They're just, it's a hit and run kind of situation. Just go. And I don't know if this is true, but it certainly would explain it. If there is this sort of um, hit and run mentality that most men are operating with on the dating apps, then I could see, I can understand why women are so skittish and particularly why they would look at my profile and say, you know what, no, maybe not good. And look at my responses and think, it's just a little bit too normal. Like I'm a, I'm a pretty normal guy. I don't think there's a whole lot there, there aren't a whole lot of red flags with me. I don't think there's any red flags. There might be some yellow flags. Like there might be some issues I have to work on. Maybe those are readily apparent. They probably are. But I don't think there's any like immediate massive deal breakers. If anything, I'm a little bit too plain vanilla. I'm a little bit too boring. I could use, I could use some red flags to be honest, like just a bit of an edge. So I'd stick out just a little bit. Um, like I get, I could, I could stand to exhibit some red flags and not actually embody them, I think might be the ideal. But I think, it, I think it just seems too innocent. And I think that can come across. I think in that environment that would come across as insincere. I don't know. To be honest, this isn't really bothering me. Like I'm not, I think it's pretty easy for like men who are on the dating apps to, to if you have a podcast, get on and start saying like, oh, I'm going to talk about why I hate the dating apps because I'm not having success on them. I don't care. I really do not. I don't want to have. It's kind of like the, the old paradox that if you're in hell, the higher you ascend in the hierarchy of hell, the, 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 the lower you are actually sinking. 
because it's the underworld, it's the nether realm. It's kind of like that. I would, I would not feel good about becoming better at using the dating apps. I think that is just a waste of energy. I'm using them right now because I kind of, it's helping me get through a difficult time. And I have met at least one person that I'm, you know, conversing with. There's at least going to be a friendship there, I'm sure, indefinitely. Like, that's, that's nice. That is helpful. That is, that is great. Um, but I, I'm just, I am curious why it's so difficult. I, I am curious, like, from the perspective of the women that I connect with. And the conversation threads just die almost immediately. Uh, you know, what is it? It's kind of like I'm listening to the claims about the dating apps people are making, and I'm trying to assess them against whatever little data I have, which is not much. I do wonder if that's true. You know, is that really the way 20-year-olds are, are working out? Like, of course, there's always going to be you meet somebody and you date them and then you break up with them. But are people really just saying, I don't have to value any individual person because people are just interchangeable. Is it just like the Uber drivers? Like the next one you can get that is close and accessible, like that's just what I'm going to go for. And this whole notion of ultimately what you're shooting for is monogamy. You're operating with that as the primary goal, maybe in the back of your mind, but if people are just not even operating with that in sight. Like somewhere down the line, I'll develop the habit of trying to become monogamous, but for now, it's just hump and dump. Is that really being done? Because I do think that's problematic, and that's probably an even worse. That would have a much, much bigger impact on human mental health and well-being than any tech thing I've talked about so far. And I definitely don't say that for any, it should be clear by now that it's not because I believe in any religious traditionalism. I'm not like, oh, kids just don't have the same values. They don't value marriage. They should. If only they did, we wouldn't have the problems we're having. I hope it's pretty clear that that is uh, resolutely not what I am saying. I just think there's this balance. I think if we've uh, if we've actually cross-corrected so far the other direction, if we've overcompensated and said, well, yeah, marriage seems to be kind of a silly institution. It doesn't seem to make sense. So we're just going to use people. I, I, I did start a podcast about the pickup artists, and to be honest, that became rambly and didn't actually go anywhere for the most part. One thing that came out of me talking through it is the idea, I think pickup artists are just like any other fetish subculture that really didn't have a way of flourishing. Like The potential members of it could not connect with one another pre-internet. So the notion of getting together and figuring out what manipulative tactics you could use as a guy 
in order to make a woman attracted to you and make her want to have sex with you in a night. And you just do that with no intention of establishing any kind of long-term relationship or connection with the person. Those people have probably always existed and they've always probably operated in their own corners of society. Maybe one or two of them meet each other, but I think there always is like a moral fiber that you, you just, you don't approach somebody in a bar, a stranger and say like, here's what I'm looking to do. How can we talk about like the psychology of the female and how we can just manipulate them into sleeping with us? That's not a socially acceptable thing to just go around talking about. Uh, you can go on the internet and post that somewhere. Given enough time, somebody else who feels the same way and has the same interest will find it. And this will snowball. And it will flourish. These people will find each other, learn from each other, uh, practice different things. Eventually it will become a thing. And this is, yeah. So what, what, what previously would have just and been an urge or a thought somebody had that they don't act on, it gets reinforced and an entire social group congeals around this whole idea. An idea that really on its own merits should have died if it wasn't facilitated by the internet or most likely would have died. It'd be interesting to know if there, any, if there was anything like the pickup artist community anywhere, like in a major city, you could still put an ad in a newspaper in the 1970s saying like, Hey, I'm looking to, you know, manipulate women into sleeping with me. Who wants to figure out nagging? But I, I, I'd be very, very surprised if anything like that happened. And if it did, it wasn't on the scale of the pickup artist community. But, the, but there is that. There is that element now. And there's also this notion of. I had to look this up, but there's this, there's a, a movement among some men's rights activists that is men going their own way. And from what I've been able to glean about this, it seems to be men spreading misinformation and statistics, probably because they believe it. I don't think they knowingly think it's misinformation, but about statistics that point to what a woman is after if she marries a man. Like, so the majority of women are just marrying a man so they can divorce him and take half of his shit. Essentially. Um, they have, I, I couldn't even cite the statistics. They're not worth remembering, but it's just, here are the stats and here's the proof that this is, women are just evil. Um, and men need to not be engaged in marriage or committed relationships because they're going to be taken advantage of by the Fairer sex, which has a malicious intent, almost always. This feels like projection to me. I feel like it says something about the man who makes this claim. And I certainly wouldn't say that all women are angels. But there are people out there who feel this way and are operating this way. Like maybe... Maybe marriage should not be a thing because maybe it is just women taking advantage of men. They feel this way. And there's, a, there's this kind of group of people on the internet that are very misogynistic and saying very misogynistic things. 
And this, this again is gaining traction. This is attractive to a certain kind of guy who has a certain kind of pathology who's maybe had bad experiences. And this is how you can rationalize them away. This is how you deal with the cognitive dissonance of having been rejected for most of your adult life. You don't fix what's wrong with you. You just say, I give up and I choose to accept a different worldview in which this thing is explainable without there being anything wrong with me. I think that's the appeal. And I, I, I even went so far, I, I heard a couple months ago, and I forget what this is called, but there's even a, a, a subset of people in the pickup artist community who believe that you should approach a woman in the middle of the day, in full sunlight, in front of everyone, like at the grocery store at 10 in the morning, approach an attractive woman and just be nice. Because at this time of day, in this situation, with that demeanor, she lets her defenses down. You can earn her trust with the intent of sleeping with her and then not engaging with her after that. This is a very real thing that has started happening. Uh, these, these men and groups of these men are out there. I know that they're out there because they're on the internet. I don't know how, the thing is, I don't know how common they are. I don't know what proportion of the population would have these kinds of views or act according to them. But I think the important question is, what proportion would you need? What proportion of men would have to hold these beliefs and act according to them in order to make most women very, very cautious about approaching any strange man with a romantic uh, possibility? I don't think it's that high. I think if, if you have just enough, I think it kills the trust. Now again, I'm 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 talking this through maybe for the same reason. Maybe it's maybe there is a part of me that's kind of bitter that it's not easier to approach women, that women seem much more guarded. Um, you know, you just hey, I'd like to strike up I have just have a conversation with you, human being to human being. I do happen to find you attractive, but let's pretend that's not a thing for right now. Uh and if anything does happen between us, I'm by my own nature, monogamous. Can't exactly say all that, but at some point, I feel like 50 years ago, that was the default stance most men were taking. If you can't trust that that's the case, what what reason would you have to let your defenses down? Um, and, and maybe it is, maybe I'm just bad at doing this and I'm I'm kind of frustrated. And so I'm looking for the element in the world that might explain that without seeing that there's something very, very wrong with me, and I don't want to fix it. I'm just looking for, I'm looking to blame the world for for my own failures. It could be that. I don't feel like it's that. Because I I, I don't have anything to gain by that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in what can you know about a people psychologically? And of course, I'm interested in the impact of technology on people, especially collectively. 
And so I'm, I'm kind of talking around this because I want to know, is this part of it? Is it just because I live in a big city? People are just naturally guarded. I could certainly appreciate that. If I move to a smaller little uh, communal place where there is a sense of community, maybe more, you, you get a little bit more trust just out of the box. Are there not these subcultures of men? Like basically you, you could approach strangers and start talking without immediately being thought of as a creep. And honestly, that's, I think that's a part of the problem. I think it's a problem definitely on the dating apps. I don't think it's a problem for me in person. I have realized this. If you go out, if I go out and talk to people, people are generally pretty open to that. I'm not good at doing it. I, 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 I'm kind of anxious about doing it. And even when I manage to do it, it's not really clear to me what I ought to talk about, you know, what I have going through my head at any point, what I could offer in a conversation with somebody just is not general interest. Um, so I definitely have problems interacting with people, particularly approaching pretty women because of that. And that's me. That's totally me. Um, but I mean, it's, it's also, there's the notion of if you approach somebody, you, you don't immediately know if they're taken or not. Plus out in the real world, out in the real world, people are not necessarily open to that. I will often see somebody who's, they look very single. You just get the sense of it and very beautiful person while you're grocery shopping. And I, I honestly, maybe it's just me being too rule oriented, but I will not approach somebody while they're grocery shopping and flirt with them. I mean, I, I not even really make conversation. I guess that would be the point. I don't do that. So, I mean, the dating apps do have like this notion of you put yourself out there and you are available and willing to be approached. That is, I think, the appeal. It's, it's the one place where you have permission, where you can earn the permission from somebody who's basically open to the possibility and talking to somebody about, uh, I don't know, flirting with them. I don't know. This is all much more complicated than I'm making it out to be. I don't know. The thing is, I feel like there's some middle ground here I'm not seeing in this particular issue. Like there's the whole, if you get back to religion, I always bring my things back to religion. If you, if you are a Christian, there's a certain group of people you run with in a certain way you believe what you believe and the way you assert it in the world. Then there's the opposite. There are atheists who believe a certain kind of thing and assert it a certain way. And these groups are at odds with each other. And I feel like there's some middle ground where they're just not meeting to really have the real conversation. 
<clears throat> and I guess as far as how, how much society values monogamy, this is not strictly a religious, religious issue. I think it's more of a cultural one. Um, and I know, I know the question of how natural monogamy is, is biologically, sure, that's, that is, I think, debatable. Um, and of course, it's a question of how, how monogamous are human beings naturally? How natural is that? Uh, I don't know. I, I would guess there's probably not a very simple answer to that question. Um, but putting aside the biological question, um, I guess it'd be a question of, well, what is good for a person? You know, th there there are elements of culture, of our traditions that are there because they are meant to supplant the unhelpful aspects of our biology, of our drives. We have laws against murdering because it, it does prevent people from, in many cases, snapping and killing someone or doing anything uh the men's men's you know nothing premeditated like they don't go out and plan to kill anyone the laws against murder prevent a lot of murder <laughs> i feel like that's a stand-up comedian said that if there were not laws against murder there would be so much murder i feel like that must have been louis ck It's very, very true. Anyway, so culture is there to kind of keep biology in check in a lot of ways. So whether or not monogamy is natural, I'm not sure that's really the case. I mean, there, there is more stability in a culture where I think monogamy is practiced. It doesn't mean you have to like get married and stay with somebody forever, but you focus your energies in one place. And especially if you have children, you, you take the, the question of leaving that person to find someone else or be on your own with much more gravitas than you would if you didn't have children. Now, there are people who say like, yes, for religious reasons, because of traditionalism, because of uh, the, the uh, tenets of certain religion, like deontologically, you should be monogamous because it's a moral good. Okay. I don't think I'd buy that just on, on that alone. And then there are people who would do the opposite. They would say, well, monogamy is, is absolute crap. You know, men shouldn't get married because women are all gold diggers. Or, you know, uh, men are all pigs. Probably there's more truth in the claim that men are all pigs than the notion that men that, that women are all gold diggers. I think my experiences with both sexes, um, there are a lot of terrible men out there. There are some terrible women out there, but not nearly as high a proportion. I don't even think that's sexist. I, I would be surprised if there were anybody who would Actually, there's plenty of people who would disagree with me and they're called men's rights activists and people who are involved with men going their own way. Of course, there are people who disagree with me on this point. Fine. I mean, you have the two extremes on monogamy. Like it's not natural, don't practice it. 
you know, it's, it's just, it's a scam somehow. You're just going to be used by the other person, like no trust, don't have trust in, in anything, in any other person. Be very, very careful because it's dangerous out there. And, you know, it, it, it matters because it's an institution, so we should value it. I feel like these are two extremes, and I can't get on board with either one. I can't get on board with either one, not least of all, because I don't agree with the logic on either side. I think the principles are, are at best incomplete, if not completely erroneous. But I feel like there is some middle ground that they're just not meeting on. It's like, what? An argument has to be put forward somewhere in the middle that is acceptable, that makes sense, and that has some prayer of being adopted. I don't know. I always come to the middle ground. This is the Gemini in me. I always see both sides, and I'm like, you know, both of you are full of shit in your own way. You, you, you both need to find some, some place in the middle and talk. And you need to change the conversation because what you are each saying, you're talking past each other and you're not speaking the same language. And you're both wrong in ways that I, I, yeah, that are obvious. If you step outside of your own perspective and look at things, you realize there's, there's other ways of looking at it. And that doesn't mean you have to look at yourself through the eyes of your enemy. Yeah, but I'm I'm not that I am not that person. I'm not that person to stand up and say, Yeah, hey, here's the middle ground, here's the sensible alternative. Or I might be. It might just be that I need to I, I need to pick a cause that I want to actually contribute to and focus on it. It's one thing to turn on this thing and start recording and just say, like, Oh yeah, this and that about the dating apps and what does it say about me? monogamy and our values and blah 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 but really am i am i really interested in elaborating on this do i want to actually figure out what the middle position is and breach it do i care enough how effective people are at getting together and and banging and then having a relationship subsequent to that or or just I don't know. People are terrible. Except when they're not. People are great. Except when they're not. So yeah, the dating apps. I don't know. I don't know. I'm slightly disappointed that it's not uh, possible to have better conversations. Uh, more conversations. I would certainly like to be talking to a, a broader uh, array of people, like a broader spectrum of people with with different interests. Another question I have is, what has happened a few times is I I, I have let a couple of conversation threads die myself. Like like the woman sends the last message, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not getting back to that. Um, I mean, in conversation, especially initially, it's always like you answer the question or you make a comment on something that is personal to them. I read your profile. 
I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm messaging you and I match with you because there's something about you I'm curious about. It wasn't just the profile picture with your cleavage in it. There's something beyond that. And you ask a question. And I've had so many of these conversations uh, with women on the apps where it's like, I will throw out, you know, points, maybe make a dumb joke, ask a question. You know, and the person comes back, answers the question, and then that's it. Okay. They just answered the question. There's not a whole lot to go off of here. Okay, so let's move it over here. Let's just shift it a little bit. Make some more points. Kind of play off their answer. Extend it a bit. Ask another question. Response comes back. Again, just an answer to the question. And I'm wondering if this is just, is it just that there are the women that I'm talking to are, are, I just don't know how to have a conversation. Do they not understand the back and forth that you have to contribute something? You have to give some fuel to this? Or is it just a very, very polite way of, uh, basically saying no thanks? Are they just trying to avoid, uh, having to ghost me because they would feel bad about that? I don't know. This is like the job interview. Like there is some body language here that would be helpful when you're just staring at text on a screen. You can't know what the intent is. And it, it could be that all, all these situations I'm describing, maybe it's not the same for all of them. Maybe some of them are trying to politely ditch me, but some of them are just terrible conversationalists. How the hell do I know how to distinguish these two things? Like in the absence of any you're just looking at words. I don't know. I would like to go to one of those uh, speed dating places. I think I would have a lot of fun doing that. I would have a lot of fun. Like probably, you're, of course, you're not meeting people. Most of the people you're meeting, you're probably not compatible with. You're probably not going to find them attractive. They're, they're probably not going to find you attractive. Uh, but just... I don't know, what is it? You, you go in and you like, you just spend, I don't want it to be more than 60 seconds, but you spend some minutes just getting to know a person and you kind of get a sense of who you'd like to spend more time with. And I guess they match you up that way. That feels like the, an inversion of this whole process that makes way more sense. Sure. Let, let, let me talk to you. And I want you to, I want you to watch me speak, watch how I handle myself. And I want you to know based on that, do you think there's potential? And if we both do, great. Like that, that's, that's the absolute correct way to do this. I've thought about doing that in the past. I think I've shied away from it because I'm freaked out. It might just be the quarantine thing in me like oh you know the opportunity to go anywhere and do anything involving other human beings would be absolutely fabulous right now could be that but i'm definitely feeling that would be that'd be a lot of fun yeah it's it's you could argue there are more productive ways for me to spend a few hours i'm not sure that's true it would just be uh 
I've spent an awful lot of time just swiping through profiles with people I might want to connect with. What's a few hours to actually go and just streamline the process? That, that would save me so many hours of using the damned apps. Yeah, someday. Someday, whenever this all ends, whenever this is all over. I, I am curious just how many, how much art comes out of this. Are people like really working on novels right now? Are we going to emerge from this with like entire new branches of science? Because people have probably not. Probably not in the United States anyway. I've talked about this before. Like I don't have cough drops. I haven't gone out to get cough drops. My throat is a little bit raw. I'm just pouring essential oil of peppermint which I keep for diffusion purposes, like just a few drops down my throat. And that is, it is super strong. So it's kind of like a rush of adrenaline. It's like you eat a whole bunch of spicy food and you're like sweating like crazy. Your system goes into some sort of endorphin overdrive trying to trying to handle uh, the, the stimulus. All that spicy food in your mouth and your throat and it's in your stomach. You just go nuts. Kind of like that. You just have this oil burning your throat. Like, ah. Like some kind of, <laughs> some kind of extreme experience. You know, it's, uh, yeah. Like having too much coffee. Oh man, yeah. I can still remember doing it. It was like a couple weeks ago. I had like twice as much coffee one day as I did. God, that was, ugh. that was rough. And that was a particularly rough day after. I miss caffeine. That is to say, I miss being of an age where I could abuse caffeine the way that I used to abuse it and it wouldn't affect my life or mental health or sleepiness or basic ability to function. So yeah, you just go pound a bunch of coffees, and then go fall asleep. Just have a, a crazy night. It's like, no, it has to be this very, like, disciplined adult thing. I actually just make, like, a couple cups of coffee in the morning, sip them slowly, and then, boom, that's it. Cut yourself off of caffeine. Done. Got to be responsible. You can't, like, do shots of espresso, and then, yeah, just have a wild night. Yeah, I'd like more things. I'd like more things like coffee. Like coffee is psychoactive and it can be abused and it definitely is abused, but it's not going to like ruin your life if you abuse it. Like it might ruin a day or two, but it's probably not going to have any long-term effect. Like there are arguably benefits to it. If you look at the research, there are certainly people making that case. There's got to be other like things out there like not quite stimulants but just herbs that are like awesome man I'm, I'm not talking about marijuana the hell with marijuana it's i i i think i've gone over this before 
I wonder how much that's getting feel like right now in California, San Francisco. People, I have heard, I, I, I talked to somebody who lives on the west side of the city. Apparently people are going into Golden Gate and not observing social distancing. So it's very much like the, the photos you see from Los Angeles where people are just not following protocol. Like it's, the, the government is saying like, we'll give you an inch and people are taking a foot. Like you can go out to the beaches, but please be careful, be responsible because this thing is still possibly going to kill a bunch of you. People don't seem to care. And that's apparently happening elsewhere in the city. I haven't seen it where I am. And again, I, I, I'm living in a pretty major hub of the city. Like I'm right by the Caltrain station, uh, central Muni, the place where people catch Muni. And uh, yeah, right by the, the baseball stadium. It's uh, close to the Embarcadero. Like I feel like if there were people who were just saying, screw it, we're going to just go about our lives the way they they should be. Just ignore shelter in place. Like I would be seeing more people uh, on the street outside my my building, and I'm really not. If, to 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 get a sample of it from here, you would think people were being very compliant. And I think in general that that is true. Like the numbers in San Francisco do speak for themselves. We've been. I think we've been fairly disciplined about staying inside, but generally being responsible about not doing what we're supposed to do, social distancing, washing hands, and so on. I, I do wonder how many people are like getting through this with a medicinal aid. And by that, I mean marijuana. You just go to the dispensary, buy an ounce or two and just that's that's what you do for uh, you know a couple months to ride this thing out just watch some tv laugh your ass off i don't know maybe it's a good thing that it was legalized just for that reason people can it's a release. It's a psycho. Is it psychoactive? Psychotropic? I don't know the difference. I don't know. I think this is the problem with me podcasting. I'm the older I get, the more I realize that I've been using words my entire life very imprecisely. So I don't. They don't mean exactly what I've been using them to mean. And there's some words that kind of mean the same thing, but not quite. It's like there are pinnipeds, some of them are sea lions, some of them are seals. Some are, uh, there's the third kind of walruses, those are pinnipeds. It's like for the most part, people don't know the difference between these things. It's just, they're like the lay people just mash them together. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's good enough. But uh, I try to be precise with language, so. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know the difference. Hmm.
you know, I think I could really use right now. I just, I, I feel like the days just drag by. Yeah, I've mentioned this before. Like days are both short. They go by quickly, but when you're in them, they seem to drag out forever. Like I relish the point in time when I can just, oh, it's, it's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. I can go into the bedroom and just lie down and sleep for eight or nine hours. And that's it. I don't have to think about any of this. I, I, there's no pressure on me to like do anything. I don't have to stress about this current situation. I can just, just, just sleep. It's like I wake up in the morning, make the coffee. I have the coffee. Then after that's gone, I'm kind of like, well, all right. How much longer till bedtime? And I can kind of get to the next hit of coffee. It's like the high point of my day. I probably really need a job. Something to occupy myself. But, uh, I have thought about, okay, if I was going to do something that wasn't programming, like if I wanted to amass knowledge for other human beings that I just had in my head that I could use to improve their lives. Like they would come to me and say, well, you're a subject matter expert about X. Tell me about X and how it can help me. If you put the question that way, my, my interest is always in psychology. Uh, it's as in being some kind of therapist or counselor. Uh, and people come to you and say, look, I'm having, I'm having problems in my life. I'd like you to help me sort them out. I, I find this absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, it's, I, I do like assessing people trying to like hypothesize, okay, what's going on in their heads, you know? And in, in this situation, like if you're, if you're a doctor, you have people coming to you. Like if you're, if you're a therapist, psychotherapist, uh, people come to you and say like, look, here, here are my problems. Here's how they're manifesting themselves. Here are the symptoms. Um, what can I do? I honestly would, would, I would like a great deal to be able to help those people. There are a couple of things that prevent me from doing this, though, and they're, they're, they are very real concerns. I think they're, they're concerns that go beyond just me. Like, it's not just that I'm, I have a problem with them. I think they're a problem for all of us in general. Um, so it's, it seems to me that if you're going to become some sort of therapist, the route to that is not necessarily a ladder that most people want to climb. I guess that's probably like most things. You have to start somewhere not that appealing and pay your dues. Like you have to uh, work at a shelter, let's say a homeless shelter. A lot of those people are mentally ill and counseling is something that they need. It's an element that they need to get out of the rut that they may be in.
you have to work someplace like that, get experience. Um, and you, you have to like get experience working with somebody, I believe. I think you have to be, it's like a, an apprentice kind of situation. You find a master and, and learn from them. There, there's really a lot of steps you have to go through in order to get to a place where you have your own practice and you can open up to treat people. And I, I think that's a good thing. I, I don't think you want that to be an easy process. But I mean, it, it does seem it does seem problematic. It seems like the, I guess that's what you have to do. You work with people on the street, or like coming into a shelter, or I don't know. I, I just I just think that makes it less appealing. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, the other the other problem I have with it is, I think slightly more critical and more to the point. And that is, I I don't think you actually get to help people directly. Um, I think in, in many ways therapy is a long con. And if you're a therapist, I think you just have to naturally accept this. The people are going to come into your office and just because of the way human psychology is, even if you see immediately what is wrong, you cannot tell the person that. I mean, the, the part of the reason I think a lot of people end up in a therapist's office is because they do not take responsibility for what they are or the decisions that they have made. I think at base that is responsible for a lot of mental illness. And so you can't just throw that responsibility back onto them. You can't just tell them in whatever form that is taking to hold them back in their lives. You can't just say, hey, look, this is on you. Here's what you need to do to fix it. People don't want that responsibility. You tell them that just flat out. But look, you need to grow up. You need to take charge of your life and do this or that. You know. Um, People don't want to hear that. And, and part of it is if people come to therapy, you really can't solve their problems for them. But I think that's, that's very, very tempting. But that's, and I'm pretty sure patients go to therapists with those exact questions, like, what do I do? And they're just hoping that somebody will tell them, yeah, here's exactly what you should do, and it will help you. And then they can just say, oh, great, I didn't have to figure that out for myself. I didn't have to go through the the hard process of figuring it out. I, don't, I didn't have to earn the discipline that comes with uh, sorting through the cruft and getting to what the correct answer is. And I can definitely appreciate this because it's the same in my field, if you will. Like I have mentored junior engineers and the, the question is, people will come to you and they may ask you for advice. They may ask you for a solution to a problem. In most cases, if you want to be a good teacher of sorts, you don't just tell them the answer. Uh, you, you maybe state a general thing, like say, here's generally what I'm looking for, and that, that here's generally the solution, here's what it will look like that will meet the criteria you're, you're expected to meet. Here's the thing you need to do. Here are qualitatively what it needs to look like, even if I'm not telling you exactly how to do it. 
Uh, but it, sometimes, sometimes it's like people are asking a question that's very non-specific. Um, and you have to just figure out how to answer the question like that. Or, I mean, if there is an answer, sometimes it is that people are looking at code, like a block of code and saying, why isn't this working? Why is this, where is the bug in this? And if you're looking over their shoulder, you can say, I, I see exactly where the bug is. You know, I, I know. And you can't tell them that. You have to kind of walk them through the process of, okay, how would you go about debugging this? Like if you didn't know, just looking at it, what the problem was, how would you go about figuring it out? You have to teach them that. You have to say, here's how you solve your own problems. I can't just tell you, you got to change this line right here because that's where the problem is. Generally, if somebody's been working on a problem for a very long time and they say, look, I'm stuck. Can you take a look at this and figure it out? Yeah, I'll. I'll just hand them the answer then. But if it's like we're looking at something together, you know, sometimes you just have to say, like, look, I, I'm not going to tell you. I need to give you a little bit of space to fail at this and to figure out how you succeed when that happens, because it's going to happen to you. you got to learn how to be persistent and just work on a problem endlessly, you know, just persistently, just just. Focus and go. Uh, so I, I understand if therapy is very much the same thing. You're not helping anyone if you just say to somebody, look, here is the answer. Here is what is wrong with you. Part of it is figuring out what is wrong with yourself. And the next part of it is figuring out what it is you should do about that in order to correct it. And I, I think therapists might know both of those things very, very quickly. But I think the only thing they can do is kind of guide you to it. Just the way I might say to somebody, like, I can't tell you where the bug is in the code, but I can tell you, here are some things I would say you should try to kind of figure out where the error is. I feel like this is what therapists do. They just, they're telling you, like, look, here, here's a thought. Why don't you explore this thought? Think about it this way. Here's an analogy. And, uh, yeah. See, see where it gets you if you reflect on that. Or try doing this work, you know. Try doing this thing, you know, practice this, see what it tells you. They're trying to enable you, they're trying to empower you. I think enable is definitely the wrong uh, word to use uh, in a therapeutic setting. But I mean, even that isn't immediate enough. Like, I understand human psychology. Like, you, you don't want to just come at somebody and say, here is what you need to do. Here's what's wrong with you for so many reasons. One, they probably won't be receptive to it. If they're in therapy, it's because they have a blind spot that they can't see. And if you just shine light on it, it doesn't mean that they're going to see it. The blinders remain on. It doesn't matter how much light you put on the thing. You need to figure out how to get them to take their own blinders off. And that is, that is, that requires so much patience. Watching a story about the Buddha, um, Siddhartha Gautama, 
Um, and it was his mother, uh, before she had him, went to see a, she had a dream of some kind, which was about a, an elephant in her stomach or something. I don't remember what the dream was. It was something nonsensical. But she went to a shaman of, of, of some kind, whatever a shaman or a dream interpreter is called in uh, uh, in oh, sorry was it Nepal Nepal in India Tibet I don't remember where it is geographically but went to a dream interpreter and the, the person apparently said you know uh, your your son is either going to be uh, a king conqueror of worlds um, a ruler of worlds or he will be an enlightened religious prophet and this is what kicks off the story now I don't know if this is true it's probably not it's probably the stuff of, of legend but I would guess that there's truth in, in the notion that there, there there were dream interpreters in those days. There, there are still dream interpreters. There still seem to be the, the people in the tribe who are wise, whose advice is sought, or people who have figured out how to read the symbol that is in dreams. And it's fascinating to me that this is this is something that people are proficient in in more primitive cultures and it's something that has found its way into our modern understanding of the human psyche just that we go to Jungian analysts and say I had this dream can you tell me what it means can you tell me what it might foretell and very often there is meaning in it there very often is some some message meant to steer an individual into their future it's meant to change the course of their lives it's something inside of you saying, yeah, you need to make a change. I remember like saying to a friend of mine, like, this is why human beings are so incredibly dumb. Because if you, if you look at other animals, like when it's going to rain, we don't know if it's going to rain. We have all these computers and simulations and, meteorology's come a long way since I made this point, but we have all this stuff, all this technology to throw at the weather, and we can't predict for sure when it's going to rain. And yet, you know, cows come together. Spiders have a thing that they do. Like, animals sense when there is going to be precipitation, and they respond to it in advance. Now, I know that there's a matter of like, well, how soon in advance do you need to know? Weathermen are trying to figure out tomorrow. Cows just know what's imminent in the next uh, maybe hour or so. So there is a difference. But I was just tongue in cheek kind of say like, yeah, human beings are so dumb. We have all this technology and we can't even predict what cows know just intuitively. And he was like, you know, I think that there are things that we know intuitively. He's like, I think human beings have the capacity in them to know when it will rain. It's just that we live in a society where we're, we're bombarded with so much information and there really isn't a need to be aware 
of the weather elements for our own survival in most cases that we just have lost attunement to that sense. And I was like, there's probably something to that. I thought about that. And I was like, we probably have lost attunement to a lot of things. We probably just don't realize, okay, we're not doing this, we're not doing that. And it's, it's really hurting us. And this could apply to almost anything I've, I've talked about so far. Uh, it might be that we use social media too much and we're not having enough in-person interactions. And this is a problem, but we just, it's a problem of attribution. We don't know what is causing the stress. It could be that the, the moves away from monogamy if it really is that people are just using the dating apps uh, like to find the next uh, friends with benefits, it doesn't even remain a friend, just the next lay. If people are using it like that and we're getting away from monogamy, then yeah, what is it doing to us? Are we really attuned to the impacts that that is having on us well enough that we would recognize it? It seems like the cause, it's very difficult to, to tie the cause or to tie the effect to its underlying cause. You might be aware of a symptom, but what is what is really driving it? It's kind of like if you get food poisoning, you, you're not necessarily sure which meal it was that you ate that gave you the food poisoning. In most cases, you have some idea like, okay, we went to the Thai restaurant and I ate a salad. Okay. But uh, you, you can't know for sure. You don't know when the pathogen gets in and when it affects your system. I did say I would come back to this. I, I asked somebody recently about this because Generation Z and mental illness, this generation of people who are just past college age and in college now, very, very high rates of mental illness, anxiety, depression, and, and social media is, of course, a culprit that is often pointed to, uh, which I wouldn't dismiss. It seems to make sense. It's a new phenomenon. And they seem to grow up immersed in that much more than any generation previously. So there's there's probably something to it. There could be anyway. But I, but I asked someone about this who went to graduate school for therapy. Uh, and she told me that uh, it's, she thinks it's trauma. And I was like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I think that people in this generation have led a very sheltered existence. Um, of course, they've had problems. But I mean, the, the depression we're seeing now is, is just in the young people. It is not in people in their 50s and 60s. And I, I would, I'd be willing to wager that people who are 50 or 60 now probably experienced more trauma. They had more problematic upbringings and experiences in their early lives than the people who are now part of Generation Z. Like if you're 20 years old now, your life has probably been much easier 
been much easier for you than it was for your parents. Like, so I don't understand how you, you could use that to explain it. And the difference, she told me, is in the understanding of what is normal. You're assessing yourself and you're processing your emotions and your, your mental state and what is happening to you in relation to what you believe is normal. So if you grew up and your parents were abusing you, let's say physically, and you don't have any sense that this is bad, like nobody, if you grow up and nobody ever tells you, well, yeah, that, that should totally screw you up. If you just grow up thinking that's normal because it happened to you and it happens to a lot of people and culturally you live in an environment where it's just, yeah, well, parents beat their kids because they need, they need to be disciplined. They screw up. That's a way of correcting their behavior. It's a form of punishment that just kid misbehaves. Yeah. Bad behavior goes away if you deal with it physically. If you never learned that that was abusive, then you never process it as abuse. You never regard it as abuse. Now, if you do grow up and you learn that it is abuse, like this wasn't normal, then you have a completely different interpretation of the events that happened to you. You look back at your parents hitting you and you think, wow, that wasn't normal. That was, that was bad. That left scars on me. That is the difference. It's a question of how, how your own experience of life, how your own upbringing and what you, what you had to deal with growing up, how that relates to what you perceive as being normal. And so there is this hyper awareness of that there is dysfunction in most families, that most things that have happened to us uh, are there's going to be some measure of dysfunction, no matter how good our parents were, there were mistakes and those have affected us. And we, we were very aware of that. And when I say we, I mean, generally the younger people, and I would say it's probably very, very true for people who are in Generation Z. So that was her theory, is that the way I summarized it was, you mean ignorance is really bliss, psychologically speaking. It's not so much what happens to you, but how you regard what has happened to you. And she said, yeah, that's exactly right. Ignorance is very much bliss. Which is fascinating to me. Um, and I think I tend to think there might be more to that. I would give that theory much more weight than I would uh, the social media explanation. Um, but I... I, I I do have a book about Adlerian psychology. It was written by a Japanese author called The Courage to Be Disliked. And this is a book that takes the form of a dialogue. There's a, a teacher and a student talking about psychology. And very early on, they talk about trauma. And the teacher says to the, to the kid, to the student, um, trauma is only what you make of it. Like the way trauma affects you is only how you perceive it. You know, if you regard it as this has happened to you and it's not something you can overcome and it was really terrible, that's going to cripple you. If you look at it and say, well, it happened, let's not make a big deal about it. 
do whatever you need to do to cope. Maybe you process it, but then move forward. You know, don't, don't fixate on it. Don't focus on it. And it ceases to have any power over you. And the student, of course, scoffs at this and says, well, how can, how can you just ignore trauma? Like if you were abused, how can you just move on from that? I don't, I don't think that's an easy question to answer, especially if you're an individual who has been abused. And it is a little callous and insensitive if you're a therapist and somebody comes to you and says, look, I have trauma in my past. You say, like, well, just deal with it. Get over it, move past it. Learn how to look at it differently and you'll feel better. You can't quite say that. I would, I would bet there's probably, that would probably not only be ineffective, but there may even be ethical implications why you don't want to do that. I think there's something to compassion in therapy for sure. But yeah, where, where was I? I always have kind of a sense of where I'm going. Anyway, so yeah, so therapy would be great. I would love to be a psychologist of sorts, not least of all because I would love to understand human behavior, both individuals and groups. And I could uh, basically read Jung for professional reasons and not just personal ones, maybe even apply some of that stuff and help people in the process. But I'm really questioning whether or not that's that's a road I would want to go down. Um, if that's if that's some, if I could be happy helping people in that way, it's one thing to look at it intellectually and say, sure, yeah, if that were my job, uh, I, I would be happy helping people sort themselves out. Maybe I would. But the the great joke on all of us is that when you when you're in college and somebody says pick a major figure out what it is you're going to be doing with the rest of your life you have no idea what the ultimate career you are studying to practice is actually like you can talk to people in the job you you can you can do an internship but you really don't know there's nothing that can give you a concrete sense of that save for going through the motions and then figuring it out this is Life is all one big dress rehearsal or a play that will never be put on. This is, yeah, this is precisely why I am an engineer now and not so much an accountant. Hmm. You know, I'm trying to remember what happened to me in the before times. It feels like at least once or twice, several times a week, something would happen to me. I'd be like, wow, that was weird or funny or, or noteworthy. I'd go looking for someone to tell it to. I'd, like, I'd get to work and be like, you know what happened to me this morning? You'll never guess. But there's just, there's just no, there's no reason to bring that up. There's no natural, uh, no natural lead-in to that sort of thing. I don't know. I feel like a bunch of this stuff has happened, and now I'm here. And I don't remember any of these things. Probably most of them were not as interesting as I remember. Like Probably in the moment, I was like, yeah, this is, this is crazy, because this is a, a break in my otherwise tedious life, and it's nuts. 
Um, maybe not quite as good as I remember, but I don't have anything like that now. It's just, I don't know. And that would be the right form to do too. Like, I don't know how long this has been. I've been, I think I'm getting up on four hours here. Like I'm, I'm really dragging this one out. There's some strategy in that one. I'm not sure I want anyone to actually listen to this. You know, if you, if you talk for two hours, you can pretty much assume after the second hour that nobody ever anywhere for any reason, yourself included, is ever going to listen to it. So you, you can kind of talk about more personal stuff. You can kind of talk about more complicated topics, maybe that you're not comfortable revealing entirely. And you, you can rest assured that it's, it's like burying it very far underground and no one's going to dig. It's like throwing something into a well. That's, that's pretty much the reason why so many of these are so long. It, it's just a way of obscuring information like, oh yeah, it's out there. It's public. You could find it if you wanted to, but I know you're not going to. But I mean, ideally, I think if I keep doing this in the post pandemic times, uh, it'll be much shorter. You know, just like a few times a week. You just do what normal people do. I have a podcast that's like 10 or 15 minutes and just covers topical stuff like what's in the news. I, I really look forward to doing that, not least of all because I'd like to live in that world again where that is just my life, where the news is not just the one thing and it's the same question every single day. You know, I have an Alexa. She just woke up. Um, yeah, and I, I have it controlling a couple of appliances in my apartment. It's hooked up to a lamp and a heat dish that I have. So I, I will say, you know, please turn on the light. And I only have one light, so it's just the, the one light that I have. And, uh, you know, she'll do it. And I always say thank you. And I'm really, really curious if you, if you have to like, does it, is there any strategy in like saying thank you to an AI? If you ask like the people who are very pessimistic about the whole thing that they would say like, yeah, like eventually they're going to, they're going to rule us. AI will take over the world. They will dominate human beings and they have a very good memory. So they will remember who is nice to them and who is not. So yeah. You, you should thank them and be nice to them. Like, don't be assholes. I kind of think that one day if, like, AI ever takes over, it might remember this stuff. Maybe it'll take it into account. But I feel like whatever cultural standards they decide to go by, who was polite and who was not, it's not going to resemble our standards all that much. Also, I, I talked to a friend of mine about AI and he was, he's one of the people who's extremely, extremely bearish on it. Like as in what we do with technology, what we are currently building, the, the automated systems we're building to make decisions for us and to control aspects of our lives. That is going to be a massive, massive problem. 
Because I've always said, well, what, what's the harm? If you if you take a, a system and you say, look, I want you to optimize for this, and you give it a, a goal, uh, how exactly could that go off the rails? You know, it, it's the notion of building a Terminator in terms of what AI can do now is so far from that, like a sentient thing that is able to understand what it is and knows how to seek out information and start doing things that it is not explicitly told to do. I, I don't know how far away we are from that. I, I'm probably thinking it's much farther out than it actually is, but I don't think it's very close. And even if we do have such a system, I mean, it. what exactly would we give it control over? When it's like it's like the lawnmower man. Like as soon as he digitizes himself, he is stuck in the computer system. If there is not, if there's not a connection out, uh, he does not survive. If the computer gets unplugged, that's a kind of a silly uh, analogy to draw. But yeah, I, I think based on our conversation, the kind of things he told me. I have a feeling that we might, it's not that AI will become a dominant form of life and enslave us. I, I of course, I, I keep an open mind enough. I, I wouldn't say that's impossible. That could happen. But I think that the way we are building systems and giving them control over certain aspects of our lives in a very general sort of way, uh, I think it is possible we're going to just completely fuck things up before we ever, ever get that far. Like, I think it'll be a matter of incompetence, you know, like we, we will build an AI that will try to go outside of the parameters we give it. And it, it will somehow, I don't know in what way, but we, we will try to set parameters around what it is trying to do. It will exceed those and that, in, that will cause massive problems. And I think that will happen in many places. That's that's my sense of it right now. I'm I'm still very very skeptical of the all of the um I don't know, the, the pessimistic forecasts about how we're we're headed for an AI fueled apocalypse. Um maybe Maybe I, I can kind of buy how that's possible in some limited ways, but I, for me, none of none of the scenarios that I see as being entirely realistic uh, spell the end of the human race. They might spell the end of some things. They might spell an awakening on our part. They're like, okay, we need to be smarter about how automated our lives are. And maybe there's irreparable damage done and we can't fix it in some of these cases. But I feel like we learn what the limits are. And we, we don't end up going far enough for it to obliterate us. But I don't know. It could just be I don't have enough faith in human beings. How should I know? All right, this might be getting long enough. I, uh, yeah, just looking for something else to do.
Yeah, you know, people are talking about the mental health. I've been talking a lot about the mental health. Like, what is this doing to us mentally? Are we psychologically just a boiling pot that is about to spill over and like dump a bunch of hot water on the burner? Like, is this is this imminent? How imminent is it? What form will it take when that happens? Because I think it's a question of when and not so much if. It definitely is because it's already happened in some places. But when it becomes more widespread, I think that's what I'm worried about. Right now, it seems to be there's a certain kind of person with a certain kind of political ideology, and they are the ones out protesting the shelter-in-place order. I think as soon as it, it becomes bipartisan, as soon as there are people on both sides who are rising up in protest and saying, look, that's when I start to worry. That's when things are at risk of destabilizing. When you can't just dismiss it away as being a bunch of fringe weirdos, um, when it becomes more mainstream, if it becomes more mainstream, and I think given enough time of shelter in place, that will happen. I don't know when. Uh, what form will it take? That's what I think I'm worried about. But I've been talking about like the mental, psychological aspects of it. I wonder about the physical. Like, like for the last week or so, I've had like a lump in my throat, which could just mean that I'm not sleeping well enough. But t- typically that happens if I don't get good quality sleep or I'm not sleeping enough hours. Like I get sort of a... But, but all of this social isolation, for me and, and everyone else, that is not good for your physical health either. That, that is not good for your, your general health overall. It, it, of course, it's not good for your mental health, but you're more likely, if you're just socially isolated and not interacting with people, things go south very, very quickly, both physically and mentally. And I, I do worry about that actually quite a bit because I think I've learned to manage my mental health and that I've learned to be cognizant of it. And I've learned to have some control over it. And I I think it's possible to do that. I think to the extent that your body is like, yeah, you know what? You're not going out and socializing ever. You've just been locked in your place, not talking to like hardly anyone ever. I don't think you can necessarily say to your body, well, look, don't give me a chronic illness because of that. Like everything's fine. I just need you to like batten down the hatches for a few months and then we'll be back to normal. You can't do that. If, if, if it's like, if it's stressing your body in a way that you don't know and a tumor develops, I think that might be one of the long-term costs of this. I mean, the, the cost of medical care is, what we're spending on healthcare is rising for so many reasons, not least of all because of the quality of the food we're eating. Um, it's just going down. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of noise to it, but I do wonder what the long-term physical health ramifications will be, as well as the mental ones. It really does worry me. And yeah, it is a motivation killer. I have like so many interesting books that I, I'm looking at. I'm like, I want to read that, and I want the information that is in there. And for whatever reason, I, I, I pick it up, and my brain is just racing. It is just... Don't feed me more of this. I don't want this. I want some other input. And I'm trying to listen to that and say, well, what exactly is it do you want? What can I give you that would make you feel better about this whole thing? 
And I'm not sure that there's an answer to that question that doesn't involve, like, I, I just need to get out and interact. Like, it's just, you need to start leading something resembling a normal life for a human being. To have somebody in your life, at least one other person. You know, maybe you don't live with them, but you just go somewhere and talk to people. Um, I can't be the only one who's like that. There's actually one of the dating apps called Happen, which is Happen without the E. It's one of those app spellings. And that one has the novel idea of hooking you up with people that are close to you. So I guess the idea is that if you frequent certain places, like you go to a gym or a shopping mall, or you're hanging out at Union Square a lot, like some public place, um, people who also go there around the same time as you are the people that you get shown. So the, the people that you cross paths with, if there happens to be somebody at your gym, you're like, well, he's cute. I wonder, well, I guess I should say she's cute. Not a Freudian slip. I'm not gay. But you see somebody at the gym, you're like, I wonder, I wonder if they're single. And I wish I had a, a good way of approaching them. And I wish I had a way of knowing somehow whether or not they might be interested in me also. I think the app is designed to solve that. It's a pretty brilliant idea, actually. Um, I kind of wish Tinder had more of a approximate uh, factor to it, kind of like that. Not just like you can filter by how far away things are, but you you really are shown people that cross your paths uh, more. In, in a large city like San Francisco, that would be helpful because somebody who's four miles away might be so far away as to be inaccessible. Like I'm, I, I'm not driving over there on a daily basis and to get take public transportation to some areas of the city like from me over to the richmond district or sunset that is just no like it would it would be painful to date somebody that far away so that the whole proximity thing makes a lot of sense you know i think in very dense urban areas but i did get on there and i say on the profile like look i i am just looking to meet with people who maybe live very, very close to me. Here's roughly where I live. Go out with our faces covered and walk along the Embarcadero six feet apart, like observe all the rules and just talk. You know, maybe sit on the water, you know, looking over the bay. Again, social distancing, but just talk just to get out and get some exercise and not be alone while you're doing it. Um, so far, nobody I've connected with on the app has been anywhere near me. And I think it, I would guess they haven't read the profile because that's not the way the conversation shifts at all. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I, uh, at some point, I don't know when, I definitely have to go volunteer. I have to just say, you know what, I'm leaving and I'm going to go to a soup kitchen and chop vegetables for people who need this sort of thing.
consequences be damned. Uh, yeah, I might be there already, to be honest. Kind of like I would it's just I don't know if you if you can develop an, a resistance to this strain of coronavirus, if you can develop antibiotics, antibodies that keep you from getting it again. But I just I just want to take the chance, just get it more than likely recover from it. If I don't, whatever, <laughs> just get it, recover from it and then feel a little bit of relief. I can go out and you know, I have to still have my face covered, but I'm not afraid anymore you know i just have to make sure i don't infect anyone else with it i don't know okay time for me to cut this off anyway it's been great uh it's been like a week or two pent up of stuff that i've been doing it's been good to just like spill that out to all of you nobody's on the internet by that i mean nobody's listening to this not that you are listening you were nobody if you were listening to this. You know what I mean. Anyway, yeah. Wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. Uh, hope you continue to do well. Take care of yourselves. We're going to get through this. Thanks for being you. And uh, yeah, until next time, this is Jim signing off. Cheerio.